A good Wednesday to you on this May 5th. Thanks for joining us here on Real Talk, whether you're checking out this podcast later, whether you're one of our subscribers that have that have put us in the number two spot in the country on the Podboard 100. That announcement released just this morning. Thank you very much. As I just tweeted uh, from my Twitter at Ryan Jesperson, thank you for those that follow along. As a matter of fact, not to be the guy to toot the horn, but it's just a big day for me personally. I mean, who cares about followers and stuff like that? But about five minutes hit the 50,000 follower mark. Really appreciate that. Real talkers. Not going to lie, Sam. It was like 49,800, 49,900. And I was just like, you know, my mom said to me, she says, hey, your Twitter's getting close to 50,000. I said, oh, is it? No, I said I hadn't noticed. I hadn't. I said, oh, uh, oh, I don't pay attention to that kind of stuff. I hadn't been paying close attention, but of course I had. See, see, and if I was 200 away from something, I I would probably go, well, maybe in a month I'll get there. Like I would I would not be confident that it would happen anytime soon. Well, you never know, though, because with with real talkers, as the show continues to grow across the country and, and every morning we welcome, we assume that new people are joining our audience. And we thank you so much for that, whether you've heard about the podcast, whether it's an an interview that put the show on your radar or whether it's people around you, people in your life that are saying, hey, you got to check out the conversations they're having here. We appreciate those of you that subscribe, even even those of you that join us every day and, and, and maybe haven't yet subscribed. We encourage you to take that step. We encourage you to really put it out there and, and officially join the community as we continue. You know, we'll we promise you we'll show up here each and every weekday morning to have conversations about issues that matter in just a few moments. Um, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Um, Natish Powa is a, a copy editor and a writer at Slate. Uh, kind of a big deal uh, lives in Brooklyn and regularly writes about politics and culture. He's got a great piece about uh, the implications um, for, for, I mean, when you, when you talk about political leadership around the world, uh, when you talk about political leadership in India, there are starting, you, there's starting to be conversations about, about what the implications of, of this COVID uh, this swath of destruction that, that COVID-19 is leaving in India. It's a hugely concerning story. We've been talking about it a little bit, you know, I mean, everything, you want to put it into perspective. All you have to say is like people are taking to social media platforms. They're looking around themselves personally trying to source oxygen bottles. I mean, that's how serious it is over there. What does this mean, though, for Narendra Modi? Uh, we're going to we're going to talk uh, to Natish Pawa coming up in just a few minutes. A little later on in the show, we're going to find out what what makes a certain Albertan tick a guy by the name of Albert Knobs. Um, his social media handle is uh, what is it against there? Is it punched in face or something like that? I think it's punched in face, and there's a story behind it, right? Oh, big time! There's a there's an ever growing story about punched in face. But but sounds like he got his face punched in for for confronting somebody. We're gonna we'll get his side of the story. Yeah, absolutely. Somebody who is at a store not wearing a mask, as the rumor goes. Yes. So he was Albert was was wearing a mask. Yes. And he went into a shop, and there were a group of folks that did not have masks on. And he confronted. He them. confronted them, and Bing Bang Bong. Yeah. He took one. It got so I got a shiner. Okay. Okay. So this is I'm sure there's there's maybe even more to that story. I'm sure this is this is interesting because we were talking about this, you know, on and off air. Didn't you have a you had a poll going? You did an unofficial poll on your Twitter, an official unscientific poll on your Twitter. Oh no, that's 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 absolutely what they're called Uh, in this business. If you start talking about Twitter polls and you don't say unofficial unscientific, people blow gaskets. Okay. What did your unofficial unscientific poll show about what people do if they encounter someone not wearing a mask? Okay. So the question was, 
if you see someone in a grocery store without a mask on, what do you do? Do you A, give them the stink eye, B, say something to them, or C, other? Yeah. And the resounding 58% was the top one. And which one do you think it was? Uh, I, uh, well, I mean, other in, in, in could encompass so much. True. Um, 58%, I think stink eye. You betcha. Yeah. Yeah. The like passive aggressive stink eye. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we love to do. Um, a lot of folks in the other category, they messaged me and they were saying, you know, get as far away from these folks and as fast as possible. Yeah. It was kind of the other. Like um, you're, you're not going to make it your problem. You're going to get out of there and let somebody else deal with it or whatever the case may be. Yeah, knowing that, you know, they they feel that there's a sense of danger and, and a sense of entitlement. So yeah. get, get the heck out of there. But th- and this is why people are saying, you know, this puts oftentimes uh, lower income workers and a lot of people that have uh, no choice really on whether or not they're going to go to work, including people that are working at grocery stores or other stores where there might be uh, patrons yeah. without wearing masks. It puts them in a tough spot, too. Right. I mean, are you all of a sudden like kind of I guess you call the cops. I guess you know we've seen this. There's that mayoral candidate down in Calgary that's been uh, that's been going around making an ass of himself, uh, including showing up at stores and getting kicked out and getting arrested. You know, sort of his his civil disobedience around not wearing masks. But the thing I'm watching one of the videos. You know, sometimes you you just watch a video and you're just you're just like. <laughs> You want to sort of enter the video? You'd like to be the person in that scenario, but it's a good thing you weren't there. That's me, Sam. You're laughing. You know what I'm talking about. A lot of times... Oh, I was just going to point out... What's, very, what's going on, by the way? Yeah, it's very easy to give someone the stink eye with a mask on. Okay, you so want like, to demonstrate how you do it? It's like, you just go... Okay, yeah, that's your yeah. mask just stink like, eye. You can, you know what I mean? It's just like, it's the easiest thing to do. Yeah, to I'm just going to say, it's, it's, it's very bad for broadcasting to have your mask on. <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> there's, a, there's a major quality dip with the oh, mask I'm, on. Oh, I'm yeah. quite aware of that. Yeah, it. yeah. So, but, but you know, you get, into a, you get into a position where, like, you know, the, these store managers, all of a sudden, this is their problem. And uh, I know that there's a lot of this going around. I mean, I told you that somebody had shared with us the, the eight or nine minute video of this rodeo organizer. And don't worry, guys, we're going to like uh, we're going to talk about some of these stories as much as we have to talk about them because they're leading the headlines and they're relevant. But I don't want to sit and talk about a freaking rodeo for for like two weeks. Trust me. But the organizer of this rodeo, he, he was addressing the crowd and he started talking about it. he said, yeah, I'm you said, I'm proud to tell you, you know, he's I am I haven't wearing I haven't worn a mask once in a year. And they're all like, yeah. And he's like, you know, you can give me a call and I'll 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 teach you. I'll tell you how to like reach out to your friends and neighbors and teach them the truth and tell them the truth. And, you know, we walk into stores and we don't have a mask. And, you know, and, and a lot of these people, you know, you know, they're going to get up and they're going to tell us we're not welcome. We'll take our money elsewhere. We encourage you to, you know, go to the places where you can get in with without wearing your mask and it's just going like the premier's beating his head against the table i mean jason kenny is is taking shots from all directions right now very difficult job jason kenny might have the most difficult job in canada right now honestly yes it is challenging but i would say that it didn't have to be like this that he has definitely backed himself into a corner 100 percent. yeah but he's got i mean it's a lose-lose situation being a conservative premier in the province of Alberta during a pandemic when you're talking about restrictions and potential lockdowns. It's just a very it's a lose-lose situation Yep. because, you know, people in the center and center left and left wingers don't think that Kenny's doing enough and the hard right thinks he's doing way too much. So he's in a tough position. So, you know, I mean, do I think that he essentially greenlit 
Uh, I mean, he greenlit and gaslit concurrently, but he but he did he kind of greenlight the rodeo. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did he do what he could have done to stop the rodeo? No. But is he probably pretty frustrated with all the anti-maskers and all that message? Absolutely. 100 percent. It's making his job very difficult. So you've got that situation. You got frontline healthcare workers. You got people like teachers. I mean, now, of course, all these schools starting on Friday in Alberta, we saw these restrictions. We'll get to what Premier Kenny had to say in just a moment. But on all these different fronts, uh, you've got people saying this third wave is extremely concerning. Variants are out of control. We need to do what we can. And then you've got the anti-maskers walking into stores to prove points and putting these rallies together. And there's there's an event you know, making news an event people are organizing for an hour of mask free shopping, for example, at a real Canadian superstore down in Calgary. Obviously, superstore is not organizing this. Obviously, I would imagine there's probably going to be some form of interference, whether it's law enforcement or otherwise. If I'm the GM of that superstore, you better bet your ass. Uh, I'm going to do everything I can to make sure there's cop cruisers out front. You're not coming in my store. I'm not going to be the one. I'm not going to have my store be the one where there's 100 anti-maskers running around. It's not great for business, but it just it just blows my mind to see it. It's absolutely wild. So this is the the, the type of situation we're talking about uh, in Alberta right now in Ontario. Big problems. But India's got huge problems with regards to uh, its covid-19 rates. And we're going to be talking about that uh, out of the lead today. Also wanted to get to our email inbox. And I want to I want to lead off with this from Gregory who wrote in, uh, you know, you take a look at um you know this date on the calendar and uh if if you're from the central or northern part of the province of alberta this is an anniversary of sorts uh five years ago i got my reminder this morning on facebook five years ago the photo that i posted on facebook five years ago was a bunch of tractor trailers in the parking lot of a road of a radio station oh geez of a radio station no rodeo in that parking lot and uh and it was and it was car after car after truck after van showing up with bottled water and diapers and everything on its way to fort mcmurray that was five years ago today gregory writes in says five years ago today uh my pregnant wife and two kids were refugees sheltering at suncor's firebag site we were given food shelter water and a plane ride out the next day when we landed in calgary a friend of a friend gave us his home for as long as we needed it and then donations started showing up on the doorstep we asked for nothing we were given everything He says, your comments yesterday, Ryan, on May 4th caused a flashback, remembering the generous, caring and compassionate Alberta. I've been proud to call home for my 42 years, says Gregory. I am not one to cry ever, but your tradio reminder yesterday made me crack. I lost it. What happened to that Alberta, Ryan? Where did decency and compassion and empathy go? In order to keep my family safe, I now have to presume everyone's sick. It could have been so different if only we had leadership that cared enough for others instead of themselves. Look at how much we've lost and look how quickly we lost it. It's been but five years that from Gregory. Well, I think deep down inside, Gregory, you and I probably both believe that that's still the reality here. It just doesn't look like it all the time. Right. That's why we find reason to evidence that reality as often as we can, the fabric of the community that makes us Albertans, that makes us Canadians. We're going to get to our first story in just a bit. Of course, we start every show officially with a quick reminder that the team at Bitcoin Well is this show's presenting sponsor. If you've been paying attention to what's going on in crypto as of late, you may have a few questions, including some of you that are going, you know what? I'm intrigued enough that that this is going to be something I'm going to throw a hundred bucks at or 500 bucks at or a thousand bucks at. Don't ever throw 
at this type of stuff, what you can't afford to lose. And don't ever listen to me for your investment advice. But if you have questions about it, the team, real life humans are ready to take those questions at Bitcoin while they're under the sponsors tab at RyanJesperson.com. Real talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Well, India is uh, at the center of, of global news focus and the headlines as, as a catastrophic surge of coronavirus sweeps through that country. Uh, Natish Pau is a copy editor at Slate uh, out of Brooklyn, New York, regularly writing about politics and culture, including a great uh, recent piece on Narendra Modi, which we'll get into. Natish, welcome to Real Talk and, and welcome to Canada. Thanks for making time for us today. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Really appreciate it. When we when we take a look at India, I, I mean, oftentimes I think the you know the pictures speak a thousand words, and it's devastating. I saw a, a cab driver uh, giving an interview, and he said he said, "Hey, let me show you my reality." He popped his trunk, and he goes, "I just drive around with an oxygen bottle." He says, "I got to look after my family. Whoever needs this first is going to get it." When we broaden out the focus, I mean, how bad is this perspective wise? I mean, I mean, it's terrible. Like. It, the surge right now is unbelievably horrendous. It is the fastest. It has been the fastest rate of new cases, infections, and deaths within you know anywhere in the world since uh, I think you know this entire year. And it's only increased more and more by the day. There, you know, day week by week, you hear India set a new record of three hundred thousand new cases and so many you know thousands of new deaths. And this is not to mention that since the beginning of this pandemic, India's testing system has been horribly inadequate. It's just not tested enough people out of its large population. So all these numbers are probably underestimates, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, you and, and that's what a lot of people are saying is that th- these are probably, uh, you know, representative or at least we've got to consider so many unreported cases. I, I'm taking a look at some of the specific stats right now. Reported cases yesterday, May 4th, 382,146. The seven day average, 381,000. 124. I mean, it's mind boggling. Uh, it's a small city in North America. These are new cases every single day. So so how, how did India get to this point? Because if, if you would have taken a look at some of the messaging back in the new year, January into February, you'd have a very different sense that this is what it would look like in May. Right. So I think it's a few things. I think one, India's COVID response has never been as good as a lot of people, a lot of organizations, including World Health Organization, have made it out to be. Um, <clears throat> from the very beginning, um, Narendra Modi only instituted one national lockdown, but it was incredibly sloppily done. Um, it displaced hundreds of thousands of migrant workers who then had to, who were domestic workers in you know houses in the cities who were then expelled from their homes. They trekked all the way back to their villages, some of them carrying the virus with them, dying on the way, infecting their family back at home, just continually spreading more of it, you know? And then there was never another mandated or phased lockdown after that. And most of the time when there has been a decent response in India to the coronavirus, it has been due to individual states taking the initiative 
um, from Kerala, which has an excellent um, public health uh, infrastructure, um, along with other states like West Bengal, Tamil Nadu, even though those are states also struggling now. But as for this point, um, it's, I, I, yeah, I think it's a combination of factors. There's one that the government prematurely declared victory, you know, back in February, they said, you know, hey, we're, we're, we're kind of out of the woods. We've beaten this, even though like there was, there were still thousands of new cases every day, but obviously in proportion to India's giant population, it is not as much as those numbers might mean in the U S or Canada say. Um, but, but around that time, like around uh, late February, there were starting to be, uh, there was starting to be a little slight uptick in cases and they were sequencing um, infections that were of new variants that many suspect to be more easily transmissible than other forms of the virus. So that the sort of lax view of, okay, everything's fine now, combined with downplaying the new cases and the deadliness of the new forms of the virus, it, you know, I think all three of those factors have led to this moment, although I, I mean, this is also completely unprecedented and shocking on a worldwide scale. I don't think any in, in fairness, you know, I don't think anybody could have predicted it would have gotten this bad. Yeah. And, and I, I think that's a fair comment. I mean, it's just it's it's wild when you look back on that that resolution that was passed in February. I mean, it declares the country had, quote, defeated covid. Right. Under, under the able, sensitive, committed, visionary leadership of Prime Minister Sri Narendra Modi. Um, I mean, that's the type of thing you, I, I sort of think I think back to, you know, George W. Bush on the aircraft carrier mission accomplished. Like that's one of those kind of moments, isn't it? So so how much of this, realistically speaking, I mean, you're, you're approaching this through an objective lens. You're writing on it, covering it for slate. I mean, how much of this lands on the prime minister? I think quite a lot of it. And I think you can take their words on it. There is a um, spokesperson for Modi's party, the ruling party, the Bharatiya Janata party, who told CNN straight up like, hey, you know, all responsibility ends up with us, good or bad. And I mean, he's right. They're all right about it. Um, the conferences and addresses Modi has given even since this new surge has occurred have all basically been to say that we will beat this. There is no need for new measures. There is no need for, you know, all that we're, we're going to get everyone vaccinated and everything will be good and great after this. But I, I mean, that was the, basically the, uh, the gist of his health address, just uh, um, the government's health address just uh, the other day. And like th there is, I think, some measure where India's government, like e even though it had a very poor overall internal response to the virus is not entirely to blame for what's going on for a couple of reasons. One of those being that um, the, it, it just does not have the ability right now, thanks to trade uh, trade law regulations, so on to produce more generic forms of the vaccines. That come through. It, it has uh, been producing, and until recently, had been exporting uh, the AstraZeneca vaccine from Britain. It also had done its own uh, domestic uh, vaccine produced by a firm, Bharat Biotech. 
But with but one of the reasons that India has in the past been able to weather a lot of very big health crises from the Nipah virus to others is that they've been able to produce generic forms of a lot of medicines and have been able to um, handle those out to its you know massive population. And without that ability, you know, with, with that 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 hurts uh, India's manufacturing. Uh, ability, as well as the fact that until recently, um, one of the needed ingredients for its domestic vaccine was um, imported from the U.S., which had put restrictions on that very ingredient until recently after some public backlash. So in those cases, I, I think, you know, it's it's very fair to say that India does not share the blame. However, um, in just about everything else from the measures the government has recommended to treat COVID, which have gone into all sorts of pseudoscientific territories, um, from the fact that lots of states and cities have had to go it alone, um, from the fact that the government still has not, you know, made a solid uh, production infrastructure for other needed materials like oxygen, especially like so many of the most horrific stories we're hearing right now are because of a lack of oxygen tanks. Um, in fact, uh, uh, the Delhi High Court um, took the government to task saying that if it's not going to start putting in more effort to deliver oxygen to the people who need it, um, it will hold the entire government in contempt. So there's a lot of blame I think you can assign to Modi and his acolytes, even though you may not be able to do all of it. If you're just tuning in, streaming this audio live on the Mixler audio app or watching us live on YouTube, Natish Powell is our guest, a copy editor, a, a contributor at Slate Magazine uh, out of Brooklyn. It, it, it feels sometimes kind of tacky, uh, you know, when you're taking a look at, at at like horrific COVID numbers here and you know what this means for people, I want to get to some of our, our live audience uh, comments and questions here for you as well, Natish. But to be talking, to be asking you about, you know, what are the political implications? Like, is Modi going to survive politically? Like we're talking about hundreds of th- millions of people whose lives are at risk. It's not all about politics, but. But policy, of course, is and politics, unfortunately, is a reality. It's a, it's almost impossible to 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 separate the politics from a pandemic. Um, recent elections are going on in India. And uh, what have those shown us or what have you been able to sort of extrapolate from the results of those? Right. So as I wrote recently, um, there were uh, five recent local elections Uh, Four of them were in states. One was in a specially designated union territory. And in two of those states, uh, Tamil Nadu and uh, West Bengal, the election results were pretty bad for the more um, right-leaning coalition of India's parties, um, which includes the ruling Bharatiya Janata Party and all sorts of other local parties within the same, the similar ideological umbrella. Um, In West Bengal, especially, so the chief minister there, uh, Mamata Banerjee, she has been one of Modi's most um, outspoken opponents for a while. She's continually, you know, directly confronted him on issues ranging from demonetization to 
um, his, you know, his poverty measures to um, the recent the 2019 protests against the Citizenship Amendment Act, which many view as Islamophobic. And from polling that showed that there might be some lingering um, BJP sympathies within West Bengal, I think the National Party wanted to take the opportunity to say, you know, okay, let's uh, let's try to take over the state too. Like in throughout the past few years, as the BJP has consolidated its power over India, it has also made inroads in local uh, state houses in several states, e- even those that have been ruled for a long time by other parties. But they were not able to crack a West Bengal. Um, and I think there are a few explanations for this. I think one, there was a lot of public outrage, I think nationwide, about the fact that um, Modi and other party ministers were so insistent on not only continuing these uh, elections while the this huge surge is going on, but also that they were campaigning in person while um, this is all going on. Like they were holding these huge rallies, you know, mostly everybody maskless, even the speakers, you know, whether Modi or his home minister Amit Shah, all you know, definitely not following general public safety guidelines. And with that, you know, just the the I, I think the combination of the Chespa of allowing the elections to still happen in these unsafe times and the the fact that they were literally encouraging these you know huge massive crowds while this surge was going on. I think that stirred a lot of anger. And the way West Bengal's elections work specifically is it is a multi-phase process. So there's one day uh, a week for like six weeks or so in which um, people from various parts of the state can go and vote for their, you know, preferred uh, assembly members. And the election process started in late March when the crisis wasn't quite yet at the point it's at now and continued through through you know late april when you know we were yeah we were starting to be in really you know emergency mode so i think during that time um even if there were other um residents of west bengal who were you know fans of modi's party and wanted to see them have more power within the state which we did see with um the BJP earning more seats in West Bengal's uh, assembly, I think they they also saw something made very clear in the contrast between uh, how Banerjee and her party were taking the pandemic seriously, how they were you know continuing to campaign in small spaces, how they were taking directly to task the national government for its failures throughout this crisis, and I think that must have spurred more late voters to Banerjee's side and her party's side. And so she's still going to be chief minister and her party's still going to have, uh, her local party is going to have an outright majority in the assembly. And so, and this is a big setback for the BJP because they did pour a lot of resources into, you know, trying to take the state. They couldn't they couldn't do that is a sign that local resistance is still pretty strong. Um, Whether this will hold true in other instances, I think, is tough to say. But 
I think it shows promise for sure. Natish, there's a, I don't expect you to have like super insider, uh, insider knowledge into the political dynamic here in our home province of Alberta. Um, but 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 essentially, if I can just really quickly get into it, we, there's a ruling conservative party, a governing conservative party. That's a, that's a it's a it's 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 been two conservative parties brought together, the United Conservative Party, it's called. And, and as is the case, there are people that would describe themselves as probably social moderates that would describe themselves probably as fiscal conservatives that whose whose political ideology or at least their vote goes to the party that they believe is most pro business. I'm obviously oversimplifying here. And then another big part of that party, uh, which which represents, um, you know, Albertans that have sort of languished in opposition for many, many years, but at times have had a, a party with with formidable power. And, and they, they've often, you know, extenuating factors, they, they've fallen just short of government a couple times. Um, our, our premier, Jason Kenney, brought these two parties together and they formed it. But of course, as is the case now, they've got people who, who do not share similar ideologies on on things like, quite frankly, the science around covid-19 and the, the the political leader here, Premier Jason Kenney's in, in a really tough spot because um, the general population, I think there's a real sense that he's not doing enough on the covid-19 file. But then among his his strong grassroots conservative right wing base, there's a sense that he's doing way too much. And at the rogue gatherings and church services and rodeos that people are throwing that that fly in the face of public health restrictions. He's starting to get booed and people are saying that he's not going to get their vote or his party representative is not going to get their vote the next time people go to the polls. And it looks like there could be. I mean, to put it into perspective, he's got 60 some. I think he's got 67 uh, representatives, I think, in our legislative house, 64, 67, something like that. 17 of them like like let's call it 25 percent signed an open letter defying I mean, it's speaking out against their own government's restrictions. That's pretty darn significant. Is it? I mean, can you find, based on my quick summary, um, are there similarities? I've heard about this like RSS and the, kind of the faction of Modi's party. Is is he in a similar position where where he's, he's sort of trying to keep his support base together, but they're not necessarily all representative of that same ideology? Yeah, I, I think there there are some fascinating parallels there, especially with the RSS, as you mentioned. So just as a um, some background, you know, the RSS is the sort of the ideological arm of the BJP. It, it's it long predates the BJP. It was formed during uh, colonial times in India as like a very Hindu nationalist um, forming a very Hindu nationalist philosophy that promoted that, you know, India is a nation by and for Hindus, essentially, you know, to, to, to crunch it down very, um, very basically. And um, so the, the RSS has over time, you know, produced a lot of politicians who are now, you know, ruling in the BJP. It is responsible for the growth of the BJPs and, you know, with the BJP in power, the RSS is more empowered than ever. It has international branches. It has schools in India that are, you know, trying to basically indoctrinate the youth into this, uh, this Hindutva ideology. And now we are seeing in some reports from media in India that 
the R, that there are anonymous RSS members who are very upset with Modi's response to the virus. So that is definitely not a small thing. If like the group most inclined to back Modi on basically everything is splitting on even this issue, you know? And <clears throat> I mean, I think you're seeing, we've long seen a lot of populist anger at Modi across the ideological spectrum. You had the student protests back in 2019, early 2020. You had the farmers protests, which are still ongoing, by the way, even throughout the surge. Um, and you have, and now you have all these other dissenters. So not only do you have these RSS members, but you have a lot of local media, like conf directly confronting Modi in ways that they might not have before. Like, as I noted in my piece, you know, a local newspaper published an op-ed straight up calling for the Modi administration to resign en masse, like, like everyone in the cabinet. Um, there, um, there are courts throughout various local precincts in India, whether Delhi or Allahabad, that are not mincing their words when they're describing the Modi government's COVID response. Uh, Allahabad has called it, you know, basically genocide. Um, and even before in Modi's term, you know, there were lots of national controversies, uprisings, blowback to his policies, but I don't think we've ever seen such a mass of anger right now. And again, across the spectrum as at this moment. So I think it's too soon to say whether it will turn into uh, a big enough uh, movement that affects Modi even more while he's in office. But there is definitely a significant shift. And I think that unless Modi, you know, actually improves his COVID response, things could look very poor politically for him for, yeah. for once. He's managed to weather a lot of it. We've got some some uh, audience members on our live chat comparing him to Trump talking about the populist base that he that he's built. Is that a fair comparison? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're, they're both very similar in a lot of ways, and they were both like, you know, on the public stage, you could see them in multiple photographs, like hugging, embracing, so on. Um, I, I will say Modi long predates Trump. Um, you know, like when, you know, he was chief minister of Gujarat, back in the 2000s when there was a huge anti-Muslim pro program in the state that that le uh, left thousands of people dead that was determined to be, you know, mostly um, targeted toward uh, India's Muslims. And that got Modi uh, actually banned from the United States until he became prime minister in 2014. So this is, you know, Modi's like, philosophy of, you know, essentially kowtowing to Hindu nationalism, conservative free market philosophy, so on. That, that has long been there even before uh, Trump ascended to the stage in the U.S. But yeah, they're, they are very, very similar. I would say Modi is a better speaker, but obviously that's a low bar. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, although I, I am I, there's something I will say to go off on a tangent for just a minute. There is as as a professional orator, Natish, um, there is something 
there is something captivating about Donald Trump. I mean, just the, the way that he when you read a transcript of what he says, it's it's ridiculous. But when he's saying it, you kind of can't help. I mean, I, I think of what's the movie I'm thinking of? Is it, is it Alice in Wonderland where the cat's eyes starts going all nuts and they kind of get drunk? I mean, there's there's something about the way he communicates. right? You know what I mean? I mean, it, it, it clearly worked for 70 million people. Yeah. So last election. So exactly. Yeah. Hey, listen, I, 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 I could talk to you for 10 hours. Your depth of, of knowledge here and your understanding, your ability to communicate is is phenomenal. And I'm so grateful for it. I do Thank want you. to respect your time, but I keep getting great questions from audience members. If, if we can give you for just a couple more minutes, um, Jillian's got a great question. I mean, we a lot of us don't know these types of things with regards to the specific dynamics and the regional realities. And and, and Jillian curious to know how voting in India actually works. In other words, she says, I wonder if a lot of the folks in poorer areas actually even get to vote at all. Uh, would you describe them as open and democratic elections? No. <laughs> um, I mean, they would like to a lot of, uh, you know, India precinct would like to say that a lot of elections are pretty fair, free and open, but they are often Polling sites are often not very accessible, especially for poor people. Um, over the past few years, under Modi's rule, there have been literal millions of people completely stripped of their citizenship, just now completely, you know, unable to vote or exercise their democratic franchise in any way. Um, there's lots of violence and brutality at polling sites um, across the nation, whether that's from the extremist uh, guerrilla Maoist groups like the Naxals or whether it's from RSS paramilitary types. So it is, you know, vo voting in India is definitely not one of its more, um, more free and fair democratic institutions. I, I will say though, again, this does tend to vary state by state. There are states that have um, better election infrastructure than others that have actually, you know, taken care in terms of, um, you know, bolstering their sites and their states. However, um, a lot of these processes are directed by a supposedly independent government commission called the Election Commission. And the Election Commission is, you know, the final word on, you know, whether, whether like, local and national elections, when they go, how they happen, whether they will happen on this particular time, so on, how they do these phases and everything. And which is why, um, interestingly enough, another local court in India to, um, wrote in a decision and called, basically said the election commission was responsible for murder in mandating these elections during the midst of this COVID surge. Yeah. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah. I'm, I'm so grateful that you've made time uh, to talk to us today and, and have helped us understand so many of the dynamics at play here. It's a fascinating story, obviously, uh, to return to where the focus uh, is for, I think, most people around the world. It's a heartbreaking story. The images are just so moving. Um, and so many people here, if I can just characterize, I won't I won't take the time to read the, the, the obviously the hundreds of comments that are coming in while you're talking to us. But but the general theme of people just saying, number one, what a perspective check for us. I mean, uh, we're, we're in a tough situation right now in our part of the country. I mean, in Ontario, obviously, they're having their problems uh, in our in our most populated province. But here in Alberta, our, our, our per capita rates are double 
Ontario's. I mean, we're leading every province and state in North America right now. It's a tough situation to be in. But at the same time, people here, audience members are saying, what a perspective check this is. And people are, in a sense, feeling gratitude based on, on, on the picture that you're painting for us. And then on the flip side, people saying this is absolutely heartbreaking with regards to some of the dynamics at play in India with just an, 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 a massive population, the population density. Uh, for a lot of people, things like physical distancing just are almost are impossible, right? And, and then the lack of basic health infrastructure, poverty, a contributing factor for, for, mil, for hundreds of millions of people. I mean, there's just so much here that, that I think people are taking note of, to say the least. Well, um, I, I just want to, you know, say on my behalf, you know, I hope that things improve within Ontario and Alberta and the whole of Canada very soon. Yeah, I know. I know it's been a tough situation there as well. So, you know, sending my best wishes from Brooklyn. Um, yeah. And I, I, I do appreciate, um, you know, people, you know, taking, you know, thinking about what's going on in India, taking the perspective because, you know, in early April, as I was starting to, you know, hear the news of the surges and I have family in India, you know, so I was hearing from them. Some of my own family members got infected. Thankfully, um, uh, many of my closest uh, family members are fine. Um, but yeah, it, it was just, uh, it was very bizarre to me to see you know, kind of the, the kind of whiplash between what was seeming to be a gradual drawdown of this um, pandemic in the U.S. and, um, you know, this completely monstrous surge in India. So, but it, it has been really, um, it has been really great to see uh, more people paying attention to it. And um, I want to thank you for having me on to talk about it as well. Well, it means a lot to us to, to have you making here your Real Talk debut. We look forward to talking to you again. Uh, again, for our, our listening audience, our, our viewers on YouTube, Slate.com is where you'll find Natish Pawa's piece. Our Indian voters finally turning on Narendra Modi. And of course, you can give him a follow uh, on Twitter and uh, check out some of the other great reporting, the great journalism that he's been doing. Have yourself a great rest of your week. And thanks for this. You too, Ryan. Take care. Cheers, Natish. Uh, we've got an update coming up. Uh, there's some action at a uh, central Alberta uh, house of hospitality, a restaurant that's been refusing to comply uh, with COVID-19 public health regulations. Sarah Hoyles, in just a minute with that, I want to remind you that the team at Eden Landscaping, I mean, this is the this is the time of year where they kick it into high gear. You know, you've been staring at your yard all winter and into the spring, maybe even longer than that, knowing you want to bring in an element like a gazebo or maybe a, a bigger deck or an entertaining space, flower beds, maybe some screening. What do you think about that? Fire tables, pizza ovens, outdoor kitchens, vegetable garden boxes, shrubbery, more trees. Kicking your imagination into high gear right now. They can do it. You have the vision, but you don't know how to pull it all together. Eden Landscaping is the expert at bringing the inspirational ideas that you have. You have pinned on your Pinterest or you've been keeping your Instagram screen grabs in a file you've got all kinds of ideas let eden design and create the perfect outdoor space for you at landscape edmonton 
www.freezenbrothers.ca. Want to remind you that our team at Friesen Brothers, they've got 15 locations across the province of Alberta, but right now exclusively to three of them. Sam's got a great photo he's going to show us. Edmonton, Fort Saskatchewan, and Stony Plain Friesen Brothers have Mother's Day picnic boxes ready to go for this weekend. Look at this. Are you kidding? Show your thanks to mom by picking up one of these by ordering at Friesen.com slash catering. You can look up their Mother's Day promotion. What a way to show your appreciation. They can be ordered ahead of time and picked up in Edmonton, Fort Saskatchewan, and Stony Plain. Friesen Brothers is Alberta-grown and Alberta-owned. A reminder that the team at Kubi Energy is hiring. That's right. They're looking for journeyman electricians. If you know one that's looking for work, that's out of work, or maybe just wants a new opportunity, make sure you send them an email. You can send your resume to info at kubienergy.ca. If you want to link directly to their site, just go to the Sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. We're also looking forward to some, some great angles on sustainability conversations. Thanks to our friends at Kubi who present positive reflections here on the show every Monday morning. Send us your good news story, your story of a random act of kindness or a photo opportunity that stopped you in your tracks. Label it positive reflections and send it to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Sarah Hoyles is a part of what she brings to the show, just a part of what she brings to the show. Her immense and monstrous contributions, keeping an eye on a story that, as we speak, live on this Wednesday morning is a developing one. What's going on? So the Whistle Stop Cafe in Mirror, Alberta, is actually being physically closed by AHS. Alberta Health Services and the RCMP are there. Uh, they are changing the locks and they are putting, they're actually physically closing it. So you can see there the Whistle Stop Cafe on Facebook not too pleased saying that they haven't done that AHS is closing down um, without a court order. I want to note that AHS has uh, and here's the AHS tweet uh, regarding the closure, but that saying that they there hasn't been any, you know, anything preceding anything yeah. before this. There was a, a closure order that was issued on January 22nd. Um, there was a closure order issued on April 12th. There was a suspension of the operator's food handling permit on April 12th. Um, the operator's food handling permit was can the permit was canceled indefinitely on April 16th. So this is not the first. So it's been like warning, 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 yeah. warning. Like you know, get your act together, get your act together, comply, 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 and then now your locks have changed. Yeah, I mean, if you're a parent, you usually you know the, the three strikes you're out. Yeah, this is more than three strikes. Okay, is this are these the same guys that were doing a bunch of catering stuff for the rodeo? You betcha. Okay, so there you have it. So it couldn't happen to a nicer business. I don't cheer. Let, hey, let me. I I do not cheer at all. The the you know problems or nor do I underestimate the issues that small businesses are facing here. But sorry, I mean, if you're going to contribute to to I mean, if if, if you're going to sort of conduct yourself in a way that that slaps in the face four million people. They're trying to get this on track. They're trying to get the curve flattened so, you know, small businesses can open again. And then you're part of the problem. Mm. Uh, so I applaud this one. Obviously, people are going to be pissed off, though. I've been seeing some of the comments online. People saying, like, this means war. You know, talking about how they're going to ramp things up. This means war, some people are saying. It's both sides, though. I mean, already starting to see just Twitter taking off and Facebook posts from a variety of different sources. I'm sure that if I know Twitter and Facebook conversations, they'll stay focused on the scientific issues and evidence that matters. 
I'm sure that everybody chiming in and commenting is bringing something very valid and making huge contributions to the dialogue. I think you might be be being sarcastic. <laughs> I, I'm being just a tiny bit sarcastic. There might be some sarcasm in there. Yeah, uh, the Premier of Alberta. We're we're going to be talking to to Albert Knobs in, in just a second, but uh, the Premier of Alberta, Jason Kenney, uh, making an announcement yesterday afternoon. He's going to be speaking again uh, today at uh, ten o'clock. Um, here's a portion of what uh, Jason Kenney had to say, making his announcements on on new public health restrictions. Uh, this, the Premier of Alberta, yesterday afternoon. Um, as Albertans, of course, for, for a little while, we're wondering what's this going to mean and, and what's going on. Here's some clarification from Premier Jason Kenney. Governments must not uh, impair people's rights or their livelihoods unless it is absolutely necessary to save lives and in this case to prevent disaster from unfolding in our hospitals. Unfortunately, that is the situation that we are facing today. The arrival of highly transmissible COVID variants in Alberta uh, is putting real pressure on our healthcare system. Despite 64% of Albertans over the age of 50 having received at least one dose of a vaccine, the disease continues to spread at an alarming rate, especially amongst younger people. The first thing you notice there is the new artwork. Right. The new podium banner. And but I'm serious. But like, I mean, that's that's not a mistake on behalf of the government. It, it's not conservative colors. No. Striking yellow. Yep. Stop the spike has kind of the caution graphic design there, you know. And then, of course, you've got the uh, the uh, follow the rules, get vaccinated, follow the rules, get vaccinated. So uh, a bit of a, a bit of a different change in tone in the messaging it doesn't say lives and livelihoods anymore. No, but I think in what he said there is it was just to me it, it made my head spin in that you know he was saying you know governments shouldn't uh what, what was her exact i'm paraphrasing but like ultimately they shouldn't interfere in small business they shouldn't interfere in people's lives yeah so he starts off with that and then he takes a hard turn and says we're going to do this thing so it's it just felt like talking out of both sides of his mouth well but i think he you know and what prima jason kenny's trying to do is 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 acknowledge mm. to his base to his voters and his donors and his supporters that i recognize that that we're here because you share our perspectives on small government and unlimited government involvement and uh, and hey to a certain degree I personally believe in a lean, smaller government, and I love having big, long conversations about how you can reconcile robust social programs with lean government, because I do think it's possible, but it does require long conversations, and we won't have it here today. The point is, Jason Kenney is trying to communicate to his base that, hey, trust me, ideologically, this is difficult for me, too. Right. Mm. The last thing I want to do is shut you down. The last thing I want to do is have you saying that you can't celebrate your Western heritage by holding rodeos. That's the last thing I want. However, without saying it, he's banging on the table going, we are the worst in North America and we can't ignore it. Right. 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 Speak freely. I can tell you're not saying something. <laughs> oh, there's a lot of things I'm not saying. We'll say them. Well, just, as much as you're comfortable, I don't mean to, you know. I mean, 
it's just it's bigger picture stuff so i i just don't want to you know take us way off course just the, this whole idea of western heritage i just i take issue with it oh sure fair enough um <laughs> so that's point one let's dig into it we got a second albert knobs i'm sure is not going to hold it against you our guest who's in the bullpen right now ready to rock and roll can't he's wait he's waving it off can, he's can, enjoying the conversation well, i can't wait to talk yeah. to him he's probably still got chalk on his fingers and, and maybe a little dust on his knuckles after some this guy's you know the nitty-gritty side of social activism i love it um, but what's your take on the Western heritage angle? I'm, I'm, I'm curious to hear it. Well, looking at what is today, today is May 5th and it's a, a, a day to remember murdered indigenous women, hmm. murdered and missing indigenous women. Yeah. So that is part of Western heritage and where we are and saying that, you know, cowboy culture, it's, it's a part of, but it's not the full picture. And so I just, I really, I just I take pause to say that this this is who we are, um, who is like our heritage of Alberta starts with indigenous folks. Yeah. And so and they're not being listened to right now. Um, I mean, we last week we we heard from Fort Mac. We heard from the folks up there um, at Chippewan. So, yeah. I'm getting some screen grabs here and, and I oh, appreciate no. this. Oh, no. no, it has nothing to do with what you're talking about. Um, no, it's, I, I appreciate you adding that to the conversation. There's nothing there's nothing cut and dried. There's nothing that's like if we're talking about this, we can only talk about this. I love that. I love the layers. I love what you're bringing to the show. It's a new perspective. It's fantastic. Um, by the way, we will be talking about indigenous representation on Canada's Supreme Court coming up in about, I guess, about 45 minutes time. Um, I appreciate the screen grabs from from engaged listeners like Rod who are sending this in to me. I mean, the online comments uh, about the whistle stop, this restaurant being chained up, being shut down right now uh, for refusing to comply with public health orders. I mean, people like a guy by the name of Reginald Peterson. Um, who, who, who I don't know if Reginald needs an oxygen infusion in the room or, uh, you know, leaving comments on public forums like we need another mayor Thorpe. Um, unbelievable comments uh, from people. Uh, you know, th- these are the types of people. I mean, these are the people that are going to talk about, you know, they're the real Albertans. Right. These are the people that this, you know, Western culture. We're the real Albertans calling for another mayor Thorpe. I mean, unbelievable stuff. Um, I'm actually I've, I've just read it. So I'm actually going to I'm probably going to get more angry about that in about half an hour. And then I'm probably going to really angry about that in a couple of hours i've just seen it i'm a little bit stunned but these are the types of comments that people are leaving uh people that don't want to wear a fucking mask for a couple of weeks um and are calling for for the cold-blooded killing of, of four rcmp officers i mean uh, especially to say that this guy's got real stones saying that about a story in central alberta i mean that's where that happened um i i uh i am i'm actually just going to move on because uh, i'm going to say something that i'm going to regret later um so why I just, don't i i i just want to flag something though that you know when we talk about um black lives matter it's in that conversation that you know blue lives matter and that comes from um that tends to come from more right-wing perspectives so it's just like that doesn't jive Uh, you you can't have your cake and eat it too (laughs) well well that and just like how much of a shit human are you to say that i mean like let's not try to over intellectualize somebody like that jerk uh, I mean, like, like, let's not try to read too much into it. Like, we're, yeah, we're finding inconsistencies in his story, I'm sure. <laughs> but also, who the hell says stuff like that? Yeah. Like, if you know that guy, make sure that he hears from you today. If I can just wow. say, let, let's let's just leave that at that for now. 
Albert Nobbs. Uh, Albert Nobbs is uh, is is one of those individuals. Uh, you you may have seen his social media profile, punched face guy. One of those guys that doesn't just talk, that takes action. And if you were anywhere near the beautiful Alberta legislature grounds just the other day, Sam, if you can call up the tweet before we officially say hi to Albert, you may have seen more than two thousand chalk stars. They died alone. Tweets our next guest ripped like a still beating heart from every soul who cared for them. It's not worth a patio beer. Albert Nobbs joining us live. Welcome to Real Talk and thanks for making time for us. Yeah, thanks a lot, Ryan. It's a real pleasure to be here. My only wish we were under different circumstances. Naturally. No kidding. No kidding. So I, I've got a lot to ask you about. Uh, uh, Sarah said, well, how do we font this guy? What, what should it say under his name when we put him up on our camera on YouTube? And I said, I said, I think engaged citizen feels yeah, right. I, feel, I, I think that, that that feels accurate. For, why don't we start maybe not at the very beginning? Take this back as, as, as deep as you'd like. But but why do you tweet as punched face guy? What's the story there? Well, I mean, you actually just made a pretty good point. Engaged citizen. I, I've spent most of this uh, whole pandemic just trying to ignore it. Uh, I've stayed off of social media, things like that. But in the last two months, especially as things have gotten particularly bad, being silent just doesn't really jive. I can't sleep, at least, you know, not the way I should be able to. And... I was actually just out to get some gas at my local gas station, and uh, I saw a few Muppets walk to the front uh, of, of the uh, of the store, running their mouth, no masks at all, that sort of thing. And I just, I had to say something. I was just tired. And, well, I uh, made a comment. Probably could have been delivered a bit more diplomatically, but it earned me six fists to the side of the head and no shortage of boots. Really? So, so actually, oh, yeah. actually, literally, physically beaten. Oh yeah, I was knocked to the ground, and they uh, they kept going. But at the end of it, it wasn't too bad—just a concussion, a fair amount of bruising. But I've had worse, <laughs> and probably for worse, uh, worse reasons. Do you mind me asking what you said to them? We've been doing this for a year. What the fuck? Yeah. Okay, I thought it'd be worse than that. I actually no, no, that, it was uh, pretty that, straightforward. Actually. Hey, buddy, I just uh, in, in May of 2021, in the context of people not wearing masks, that that is diplomatic in my mind. I actually Jesus think you held Christ. it together all right. I think you held that together okay. Thanks. How are you doing? Before we go further, how are you doing? How's the, how's the concussion? Those are the things that can last around and stick around for a while. Yeah, sleep's still a little weird, but all things considered, I'm I'm getting over it. Just a little fuzzy. Okay, yeah. so. Would when you? I, uh, after it happened, oh, sorry. No. After this happened, though, I, I sort of, I, I guess I, I, I guess I just got louder. One of the things that I always try to live by is that if you've driven someone to violence, chances are you're probably going in the right direction, especially if you just use your words. So, I just embraced it. Are you? Uh... Are you like, how do I, let me just ask this, like, are you just a citizen or like, I don't know what you do for work or anything like that, but with regards to, 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 to your conviction on this, uh, to actually say something uh, to someone that's not complying with mask regulations or to, to actually take the time, we're going to get into your chalk stars and your other chalk work, um, your, your chalk campaign, maybe we'll call it, uh, but you're a motivated guy. I mean, it, to, to write out. I mean, more than 2,000 deaths in Alberta. You honor those people. 
Um, you honor those Albertans, those human beings that you honor the families by taking the time to do that. Uh, what's driving it? Well, I, I've lived around my life, I'm born and raised uh, Edmontonian, grew up in Millwoods. And you start to feel after a while like this place has changed a bit or maybe not necessarily changed, but some of the worst elements of it have become braver. And I want to keep living here. My, my family's here. I love this city. I love its people. They piss me off sometimes, but all things considered, even growing up a progressive in this province, I don't hate it. I love it for all of its warts and blessings. So to me, this is, I guess, a little bit selfish in a way, just because I want to stay here. I want to live here. and I want there to be a future here that makes sense. I don't want to see this happen again in some other context. I don't want to have another disaster and ideology is a thing that des- determines what we actually do about it. Hmm. It's insane. So you get this. By the way, we're, we're charged. Did you file a police report after you were beaten? Were charges ever laid? What's going on there? Um, yeah, actually filed a rep- police report. The uh, EPS showed up to the scene. The um, shop owners actually pulled the alarm. And I got to see some lovely EMTs. They actually thanked me for it, which mm. was kind of humbling. But um, it's still ongoing. As far as I know, they passed the Im- image around and they'll let me know if somebody sees them. OK, so they're looking. Do you know if that image is? I mean, I'd be happy to share it. I think we could probably amplify. I'm it. actually working on getting the video feed okay. from um, the gas station. It's just it belongs to yeah. it, Suncor, whatever owns Petro. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, well, I, and I imagine the, the information requests and I haven't been, I've had other priorities. Sure. Obviously. Uh, we'll make sure that that video sees, you know, a little bit of traction. If you can get it to us, uh, this is just as an aside, we, thank we, you. we can talk about that later. Well, I mean, I'd love to see charges late. I mean, you don't go around putting the boots to Yeah, people. it was not fun. I got knocked to the, I got knocked to the ground with a first punch. I'm not a fighter. Yeah. You're not, you're not a fighter, <laughs> but you are punched face guy. Um, who, who, I would imagine spent probably hours on your hands and knees uh, holding yes. holding chalk yeah. down at the Alberta legislature. Where'd you get the idea to honor, to memorialize, to, res- you know, to, to essentially pay tribute to the more than 2000 Albertans that have died? How'd this come about? Well, um, yeah, it took about eight hours, actually, all told. Wow. Uh, the chalking, the chalking just sort of became uh, a way to express myself that, brought some kind of catharsis. I'm obviously pissed off at the government. I don't know if that's, you know, clear or not, but you feel so powerless. You can't, you can't march right now. That doesn't make any goddamn sense. What the hell else am I supposed to do? Just rage on Twitter all day, all night. Doesn't do anything. And one night late at night, I saw a post about Adriana Lagrange's office and a no chalking sign they put up. And this was of course, in reference to the curriculum, you know, fiasco that's going on and kids kids and adults have been writing stuff outside of her office. And that was clearly just horseshit. I, and it just, it, it literally triggered something in me. And I drove down that morning at around 5 AM to Red Deer. And I put in rather uncertain terms uh, in chalk, big block letters, we reject UCP. Hmm. And it resonated. It, you know, passed its way around. And I thought, wow, it actually felt amazing. And it was something I could do. That's, I guess, where the chalking came from. But 
it's uh, it occurred to me that well, when you see a number of casualties that's over two thousand people, it's hard to actually fathom, right? Yeah. Sometimes we'll compare to something similar like nine eleven, just to give some frame of reference, right? But you know, for this, it's it's even harder because we lose people only by a handful uh, in a daily death count that just sort of hovers over us once or twice a day, assuming we're paying attention. Yeah. But that doesn't really account for the scale of the damage. These people all died in really horrific circumstances. They're quarantined. They're in pain. They're separated from the people they loved and, and the people they loved are separated from them. The nurses with them are the only ones who get to give them comfort. And that comes with weight. And this is essentially invisible. You don't, you don't wake up and, and drive by an ICU on your way to work. You, you, there, there aren't live feeds into uh, the University of Alberta right now. That, that, isn't, that isn't the thing. So I really wanted to address the elephant in the room when it came to our cultural response to COVID. And I say cultural with intention. To me, this just, this just boils down to ideological justification for selfishness. This is a horror show for a really large slice of our population. Our freedoms aren't under threat from the government. Our freedoms are threatened by the virus and worsened by our response to it. The freedom of those, you know, 2,100 plus Albertans was taken from them. They don't get that back. We need to put effort in to reckon with this. So I guess that's that's what I was doing. Putting effort into remembering these people. That's not, it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be something we enjoy. It's going to suck. But for the sake of the people we're losing and all the people are hurting and all of our nurses and our teachers, our doctors, we need to reckon with it. Eight hours on your hands and knees with chalk. Uh, at that time, 2086 stars. I want you to know that uh, an audience member uses the handle lawless as uh, says my aunt is one of those stars and she died alone on a respirator. Thank you. What does that mean to you? That's not the first person who said that. What people, what have people been saying to you? Uh, that, that exact thing. And I feel, I mean, thank you. Um, I obviously feel honored. I don't I don't want to feel good about it hmm. I don't want to I don't want this to be a feather in my cap that's that's not the point and I know that's not that's not what is being said here it's just it's not something you want to feel good about until this stops and we can all get a chance to mourn this together properly 2099 deaths recorded in Alberta. That's that's the updated total. I've got a, I, I This is not profound. I'm just sharing with you. I'd say this to you if we were having a beer and, and someday we will. Um, I've actually just learned a, a text. I've learned that I'm actually pretty good friends with one of your cousins who she oh, was. God she, damn she, it. I totally forgot yeah, about that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So your family's watching. And uh, and I, did they all know that you got your ass handed to you? Did they all know that you were subject to a beating or some of your beloved family? Have you been hiding this from your family members with with television makeup? Because you, you look no, so no, strikingly. No. You look so strikingly handsome today. Your family. Your family's aware. <laughs> my, my point is. Well, thank you. 
I, I look forward and I, and I know our paths will cross at some point. You and I will crush a couple cold ones. Um, I was expecting I was like, this guy's he's punched face guy. Like it's, it's not civil disobedience, but I was like, he's taking civic action. He's like chalking stars and he's chalking outside the education and he confronted anti-maskers and he took a beating as a result. And I was kind of expecting this like brash, outspoken, like, like sort of like boisterous, loud. And, and you're, you're like what I think is going to resonate with, at least what's resonating with me is you're a very contemplative person. I can tell that you much like me, feel things very deeply is that fair to say yeah sometimes mm-hmm. i kind of wish it wasn't necessarily true <laughs> the, it's a tough switch this, to flick this, off. this whole thing this whole mess if you have a sense of empathy which most people do yeah this hurts you don't have to lose somebody to know that there are people who are losing their minds in this province and you care about these people. You don't know them in the moment. Um, but I've always tried to think about, you know, the perspectives around me and the things that, that shaped me, you know, to metacognate a little bit, to pull yourself outside of yourself. And, you know, I don't always succeed. I'm, I'm definitely not the you know greatest guy in the world in some ways, but um, I always try to do better. And, you know, right now, it isn't too hard to do better, in my opinion. There are these little things that we can do that make such a big difference. So why not do them? Hmm. It doesn't have to be eight hours of chalking. It can just be, you know, showing a little kindness, saying thank you to someone for holding the door. If if someone's wearing their mask around and you, and you think that, uh, you know, just because they're in their car, that it looks stupid. Well, you know what? Who cares? Yeah. That's, we have so many more important things to worry about right now. We should be putting our energy into getting all of us out of this. And, you know, I, I, I watched your, your bit about India uh, before with your, with your previous guest, mm-hmm. And that's just another really important, you know, element of this whole situation we're not just in this together as Albertans. We are in this together as a planet that is over a billion people in that country. Mm-hmm. The amount of mutation that could produce if they were all infected. My God. Yeah. And, and hell, they produce most of the world's bloody vaccines for fuck's sake. Yeah. Ooh, right. That's what I he forgot was just, I could swear on this. One. Oh, yeah. This oh, well, I feel your eyes just lit up in a way that we might have to put an NC-17 on this episode if you're planning on, you know, I mean, you look a little motive. You look a little inspired. See, that's that's the squirrely eye that you just gave me. That's the squirrely eye I was expecting the whole interview. You know, I was expecting this to be a wild ride. Uh, instead, I'm sitting here. You're hit. You're hitting me at my core. Uh, you're challenging people. I'd read you all the uh, comments that people are leaving on our live chat right now, but but I suspect that you, you're the type of guy that might get a little bit bashful. Um, Jay Bell says, I would also like to have a beer with Albert. You know, what we're going to do. I'm going to tell you because because real talks a different format. It's different than what we understand and recognize and so uh, adore the fact that we have audience members across the country and, and quite frankly, around the world. Uh, people in more than 60 countries access our website every single week. However, for the people in our neck of the woods, uh, once this covid thing uh is all wrapped up once it's but a memory and i don't know when that's going to be all this talk about we're nearing the end everybody the the end is in sight i'm not so sure right now but 
but we can control certain factors and we should. But when it is all said and done, the people in our neck of the woods, we're going to do things like parking lot parties. We're going to have barbecues and we're going to and we're going to get a keg and we're going to do some really cool and fun stuff that will involve guests that have been on the show and audience members and some of our prominent commenters on the live chat. And I've got all kinds of wild ideas that I can't wait for. Uh, you're going to have to be there, buddy. Um, oh, man. But, uh, uh, I was, I worked 10 years as a chef. I can handle the grill. Oh, uh, did we just have somebody volunteer to handle the culinary side? Oh, fuck yeah, oh buddy. buddy. OK. And then I've got and then I've got we've got friends that can provide. Uh, I was talking about Friesen Brothers. I'm not going to speak on their behalf, but I'm pretty certain we could line up some things to I'll throw volunteer on the grill. to be Albert sous chef right now. I'll Sam just put that on the table. Excellent. Yep. yep. Well, Made Sam, you're going to have, though. But Sam, we're going to have kind of we're going to have to have kind of a whole area where people can come meet you and talk to you and sam's probably gonna i'm gonna get sam to do all kinds sam show them how you can sam you gotta show them how you can do this there's room for a barbecue back behind my table here somewhere we could do like we could do breakfast ventilation might be an issue but we'll be fine event ventilation will without a doubt be an issue uh at the very least i could fiddle a waffle iron back however we do have our (laughs) we do have our big significant air purification unit i'm tempted to segue right into a thing for clean air club albert I'm tempted because it's just right here on a silver platter. Um, but <laughs> I'm going to wait. <laughs> I, I, and I'm going to wait for a second. Um, Hope Springs says this man is so humble, so well spoken. His humanity off the charts. Adventure Cycling's watching says empaths feel what is going on so much. And it is so hard at times. Tracy says, can we please point out the 2000 or more Albertans? That's like losing the entire population of Rimby. Heavy D says this dude is very inspiring. That's at least how I picture Heavy D. This dude, I tried to really sort of drop it down like Heavy D is probably not like, like, hey, I'm Heavy D, but maybe he maybe hey, this dude's super. I don't know. Tanya says, thank you, Albert, for keeping the focus on what's important. The pain that this virus has brought so many um, I mean, this this is just I mean, you can you can just you can go back, Albert, in your own time or wait for your family members to let you know the rest of the reviews, rave reviews here from our audience. I'm just as a fellow Albertan, I'm grateful for what you've done. You've inspired me. You've inspired our audience without a doubt. And you've reminded people um, that we have a voice and we can use it. If I may. You put the Albert in Albertan. I couldn't help myself. It was right there. Speaking of, it I've was, never heard that one before. You've never heard. Honestly, promise me. Oh. Promise me. Oh, <laughs> I've lived here for thirty-three he's heard years. It a few heard, times. He's heard heard it. Thank you. That, that Damn actually it. is very kind. Damn it! <laughs> Thanks for doing this, pal. We're proud of you. And 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 in all Thank seriousness, you. let us know when you have that video, and we'll we'll blast it out there. I will. Okay, Appreciate that's Albert Knobs. What an absolute beauty. Uh, you can give him a follow uh, on social media. Look for him. I've, I've tagged him in my Twitter uh, every morning. I tweet out our guest lineup at Albert underscore knobs, an engaged citizen, the one who drew eight uh, rather 2086 stars in chalk at the Alberta legislature earlier this week. That was on May 3rd. It's now May 5th. Alberta's deaths due to COVID-19, 2099, 13 more Albertans over the last two days have lost their lives. A star for each person who died from COVID-19. What an unbelievable guy. Uh, In all seriousness, um, we want to hear stories like this. Uh, Albert and I are joking around a little bit and having a little fun, maybe in part so we don't start crying. Um, Doesn't mean that uh, I mean, we don't feel this. I know you do. I know I'm preaching to the choir right now. I can see it on Sarah Hoyles and I through the plexiglass. I can feel how you were feeling that. What what a guy. And 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 Albert's like he's going to say he's just a guy like there's hundreds of there's millions of us out there. 
Right. I just I really appreciated the reminder. You get a CEO of this or an executive director of that. That's just a guy that got on his hands and knees for eight hours and chalked out 2086 stars. I think that was what was the most um, just hopeful was the fact when you asked me like, okay, but but who are you? Like, yeah. what do you do? Who who are you affiliated with? Yeah. <laughs> and it's just like, no, no, I'm not no one myself. I just this is something that I feel compelled to do um, to support people that are, you know, following the restrictions and believe in the virus and want to see us get this under control. It's it's just so hopeful. And in, I mean, it's, the words are not going to do it justice. Like I was going to say inspiring. Mm. <laughs> it's like what? Um, I love how this is resonant. This is landing with people that are watching it live. Lisa says, Albert brought me to tears and my son just walked up and offered me a scoop of Fruit Loops for comfort. That <laughs> from Lisa. I don't care how lousy I'm feeling. A spoonful of Fruit Loops. A spoonful of Fruit Loops would, would do the job. I, yeah. Now, I don't want to know what Fruit Loops are made of or how they become the color they are. But I will say one of life's great joys mm-hmm. as a child or an adult is drinking the milk after you've finished the fruit nope, loops disagree why why yeah because it's it's just like sludge certain cereal i will drink the milk fruit loops is one that's like nope that i'm really is- I, I i who who hurt you with related to fruit loops <laughs> i mean fruit loops kind of hurt me too because you know the roof of your mouth yes. just gets butchered you, you have to you have to fruit loops are like a delicate you either <laughs> dance. you it's either dance. you either know what you're doing it is a dance it's exactly a dance you either know what you're doing or you don't yeah and because if, if you hammer in on the bowl right away you're in, you're right it will demolish the roof of your mouth if you wait too long it's nasty exactly it's like one of the nasty actually they're they all get nasty yes. over time um, shreddy's probably the worst but, but or like they're vicious shreddy's Sh- can be vicious shreddy's can be vicious um, but but shreddy yeah, shreddies have seemed to me to be longer like fruit loops uh, <laughs> fruit loops are the strawberries of cereal right whoa quote that one right fruit there loops are the strawberries of cereal i'm so disappointed <laughs> i already did the Friesen brothers spot or i could go right back into all the cereal and fruit that they have some random guy says it's not a real talk episode without a dad joke and sam's cackle in the background i absolutely <laughs> love it that's why i know said we've always said sam's laugh is like our barometer for whether or not the show is actually entertaining um others of you are, are chiming in now uh like for example kim says captain crunch hurts more than fruit loops <gasps> oh yeah um True. tracy says keep in mind there's a reason why they spell it f-r-o-o-t and not f-r-u-i-t <laughs> fair enough okay fair enough i'm not here advocating for you replacing your children's fruits and vegetables with fruit loops I'm just saying I'm not surprised Judy says this is a food show that always leaves you hungry Linda Ray says another show serious crying and laughing it's how we roll it's how we roll it's not on purpose it's just what happens uh, we're going to talk to Dr. Book Caller Salami in just a second. I do want to remind you that at cleanairclub.ca, you can make sure that your family breathes easy and saves money. Uh, the number one thing that you can do right now that's going to take you five minutes to improve your quality of life and the quality of the air you're breathing in your home is to change your furnace filter. It takes five seconds. You go, you check out the size of the filter you need. You go to cleanairclub.ca, you sign up. Oftentimes the same day, sometimes the next day, you've got your replacement filters delivered to your front door. You pay less than you do in the big box stores. And you can know that you did something to control your family's quality of life. At cleanairclub.ca, save money and breathe easy. 
The team at Local Waste wants you to know that integrity is literally a core value of that company. So is no BS. I've seen the poster myself. Now, what does that actually mean? It means that they don't try to squeeze profits out of their partners, the small business owners that they've worked with for more than 25 years of locally owned business right here in Western Canada. They're going to get you the bin, the size you need. And as your business grows, so grows your bin. They're not trying to maximize their profits by taking you to the cleaners. Learn more at localwaste.ca. And of course, keep the emails coming for Trash Talk on Friday to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Did you know that Westworld computers, yeah, they're all about Macs. You know, you need your iMac or your MacBook Pro or your your watch, maybe an iPhone, whatever. Look at Samuel G. Brooks and his beautiful production station there. Westworld is powering this show, but they also carry Sonos, which is your whole home Wi-Fi audio system. They've got the portable speakers, voice control, multi-room listening, Bluetooth streaming, all-day battery life, and waterproof durability. Sonos is a top-shelf option. They also carry audio products like Beats, Ultimate Ears, JBL, and more. They're happy to ship wherever you're tuning in to Real Talk from. You can check them out online at westworld.ca. Well, it is Mental Health Week, and we're committing uh, to bring you stories that matter, stories that we know will resonate with this audience, and we hope that will push you to be more aware of an issue, of a challenge that more than one in five Canadians will face through the course of their lifetime. Dr. Bookcaller Salami is an associate professor at the Faculty of Nursing at the University of Alberta. She's an expert on immigrant health, and we're grateful to have her here on Real Talk. Uh, Dr. I apologize for keeping you here waiting while we have these frivolous conversations about cereal. Thanks for making time for us today. Thank you for having me. I've been enjoying it. Hey, when we when we talk about mental health and mental health awareness week, we know that there are literally a thousand angles that we could take on this conversation. You've been processing the link and you've been writing about the link between mental health and racism. Where does our conversation need to start? Well, I think um, our conversation needs to start by addressing, um, you know, the social determinants of health. So we know, for example, that, um, you know, there are several factors that influence um, uh, mental health of um, people in Canada. And uh, many of those factors are based on social determinants of health, including issues related to racialization and racism, and also issues related to income and uh, community belonging. So I've done some research in the past that has shown um, you know, the, the vital influence of um, um, racism, including anti-Black racism, um, and also the vital influence of um, income and community belonging on mental health of, um, of um, Canadians. What would you say are the key factors uh, that contribute to the health and the mental health of Black Canadians? What is your research showing you? So, so some of the key factors. Um, so in the past, we've done some research related to mental health of um, Black youths um, in Canada. And we interviewed around um, 129 Black youths and also had group discussions with 129 Black youths. And the most talked about reason um, influence on mental health was um, racism and um, discrimination. Um, you know, that was the most frequently talked about um, factor by black youth. Youths also talked about issues related to cultural expectation 
And the notion of, um, you know, you're a strong black youth, so you cannot have a, a mental health uh, need. And also intergenerational tensions, tensions between parents and um, youths. So I would say that, um, you know, in, in terms of um, the research that we've done with youths, racism and discrimination, we've also in the past looked at um, the influence of, um, analyzed the Canadian Health Measure Survey, which included 12,000 participants. Racism wasn't um, a factor on the survey, but income and community belonging was identified as some of the strong factors that uh, contribute to the mental health. So from the research I've done so far, if there are three factors that really influences people's mental health in Canada, especially racialized individuals, it will be um, racism, um, income, and also community belonging. Doctor, you wrote a piece. Uh, this was back in in November of 2020. Uh, it was published in the Edmonton Journal. Pe- people can search for it in the archives. It's time to tackle systemic racism in healthcare. Uh, this obviously about seven months ago, six months ago at least. Uh, you, you wrote there is a hidden underbelly of racism that exists in healthcare, and it is directly responsible for many negative health outcomes. Now, some people that hear this interview will go preach it we know we could give you a hundred examples and other people will go a hidden underbelly of racism in our healthcare system what where how Uh, so where is it uh with regards to how it manifests itself whether it's access whether it's quality of care what are we talking about specifically so so um the i'll just give you an example the COVID 19 pandemic has really really shed light on issues related to how racism impacts mental health, uh, impact health outcomes. So we know from um, COVID-19, from data around COVID-19, that black people are most likely to um, to have um, COVID-19 infection. And we know that not from Edmonton, um, but, but from um, all the data that has been collected in Ontario, in um, Quebec, that um, if you're black, you're more likely to um, to, um, and what are the reasons for that? Many of the reasons for that is actually the underlying determinant of health, including the fact that black people are more likely to work in the lower tiers of the workforce. And of course, when you look at the reason why black people are more likely to work in the lower tiers of the workforce is oftentimes because of issues related to discrimination and segmentation in the lower tiers of the workforce. So in the long run, yes, you know, we can look at issues and say, Oh, you know, there's COVID-19 infection, you know, and, um, and, you know, when we look at the data, we can see that, you know, black populations are more likely to get COVID-19 infection. But when, when we start looking at the underlying causes of the causes, then we start saying, okay, for example, when you look at the nursing profession, which I am at, it's white on top and it's black under it. And what are some of the factors that actually contributes to that when you go to personal support workers, you find more black people. When you go to people that have PhD, you find less, um, you know, um, less black people. Then you start actually seeing the fact that, you know, there is underlying issues related to racism um, in the Canadian society and racialization in the Canadian society that actually contributes indirectly and directly to health outcomes. We also know that um, you know some populations experience racism in terms of um, accessing services. So we know, for example, research that has been done that shows that pain management is different, um, that some healthcare professionals provide different 
forms of pain management for people based on the color of their of their skin or based on their race. And this is things that arises due to both conscious and also unconscious biases that people have. And um, that's some of the things that we need to tackle. Doctor, may I may I ask you about your personal experience? Uh, you're talking about how you know there are very few um, in, in the nursing profession, in particular, was one example you gave. You say there are very few, um, you know, black men or women or professionals with PhDs or so-called at the top of the profession. Um, what has your personal experience been like in this regard? I mean, have you experienced a lot of this? Are you speaking from a firsthand perspective? So, I mean, a lot of the work that I study in terms of Black youth is trying to really fix some of the experience I had myself as a Black youth and um, ensuring that, um, you know, someone else does not experience that. So, for example, when we look at um, um, the the nursing, um, um, you know, people that have PhDs in nursing in Canada and have a tenure track faculty position. We don't have, you know, too many. I'll probably doubt if we have um, no more than 10 that have um, tenure track or that are tenured in, in, um, in Canada. And that is one of the challenges we have. So, so we see in terms of, um, you know, the nursing profession, um, it's, it's, it's um, you know, more concentrated um, um, below, below the hierarchies. So, um, you know, that's something that as, you know, people talk about um, nursing, it's um, the healthcare workforce is like a cappuccino. It's um, um, black on the net um, and it's white on top. And there's a need in terms of mixing it up. And that also has actually implications for health outcomes. Because we know, for example, um, some of the black kids that have spoken to us um, in the past, they talked about the fact that they go to a healthcare professional. They have, they've ex- and you know, they say, I've experienced racism because of my mental health. And the healthcare professional just wants to brush it off because they themselves have not experienced racism or they've not, they don't have tools in terms of how to deal with racism. So it's very important that we have a diverse workforce that is able to actually address a lot of the underlying so- social determinants of health, including um, issues related to racialization and racism. I, we received so many uh, different examples, and I'm so grateful for, for what you're talking to us about here. I want to show another one on my screen. This this uh, I received this tweet. I, I don't know much about this group, quite frankly, except for uh, there's an association. It, it's, a, it's a modest following, um, you know, just 13 followers right now. The Association of Mexicans in Calgary says they advocate and organize with migrant farm workers in Alberta. And they tweeted at me yesterday. They said this is an urgent matter of equitable access to health care in our province, said they're very concerned about migrant farm workers in Alberta not being able to access the vaccine due to isolation, systemic racism and lack of access. Uh, they say that this is irresponsible and dangerous, a community already vulnerable to the virus and people that are that are curious to read their full statement can see them on Twitter at a Cal and then the number one a Cal one. They have a statement out they've sent to Alberta's premier uh, and they pass it along to those of us at Real Talk. I mean, yet another example of, of people's personal experiences, another example of where they say there are barriers to health care here as, as a result of the, the reality of systemic racism. So this begs the question. You say that that healthcare workers may lack the, the insight or the training or the protocol. How are we doing on that front? I mean, with regards to health policy, with regards to decision makers, do you see that in a field that, that, that is obviously chock full of people who believe you would, for the most part, in, in science and evidence and best practice? Do you see that we're moving in the right direction or is it time to start waving a few red flags? 
Yeah. So uh, before I address, I would just talk about um, the the issue that the migrant farm workers have raised, because in the past, I've also done work on temporary foreign workers. And some of those temporary foreign workers includes migrant farm workers. And they experience such a great challenge related to healthcare and related to healthcare access, including mental health. So one of the unique things that they experience is because of their temporary um, 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 temporary migration status in Canada, their experiences, immigration status also intersect to shape their experiences in, in Canada. So for example, being able to access resources um, you know, is oftentimes much more um, limited for them, including resources related to COVID-19. And we must also address the issues related to housing that some of these migrant workers face in terms of oftentimes living in overcrowded and um, housing. So it's very important to address many of those um, issues. And now I forgot what your question was um, that I, I was um, That's, going to. You're, you're just like me. You're passionate about something and you start talking and you're talking about the most important things, which is great. So keep it up. But I was curious to know how we're doing uh, as a society uh, and with regards to, you know, governing bodies, regulating bodies, the college, et cetera, on policy and on being aware of and these type, types of trends and so statistics. The, so, so one of the beautiful things that we've done is um, a lot of organizations have rolled out educational workshops to um, address um, racism. And I think there's been a growth in a lot of those educational workshops since um, um, you know, last year, um, since um, last year. But one of the challenges we have is educational workshops are often rolled out without any measures related to accountability. So, you know, people come to an education because the employers have forced them to it. And it's like, yes, checkbox. You know, I've completed the education, that's fine. What we do not have is accountability measures and accountability metrics to actually address some of those issues and to ensure that people are infusing into, into their practice. So for example, I looked uh, very um, recently about the standards of practice and the codes of ethics for several healthcare professionals across Canada, including standards of practice related to nurses, um, nursing, um, um, nursing in Alberta standards of practice. When you look at the standards of practice, and especially the policies and guidelines related to culture, there is nothing about racism. Like racism is not even mentioned in it. And how can we ensure that we are actually ensuring our healthcare professionals are delivering anti-racist healthcare practices when even you know, the largest profession, the nursing profession, in their cultural, the guide to cultural competence has nothing about racism in it and avoids the hard word. And I think those are some of the things that we have to change. We have to ensure that evaluation criteria, that we are not just educating, that we are also evaluating some of those education that we are providing um, to, um, to healthcare professionals so that they are infusing it into their practices, um, their daily practices. Doctor, do you get the sense, though, that there's a, an openness to that? I mean, when you say the word's not even used... Uh, the word racism that's not even touched on, it's not even acknowledged, let alone adequately addressed. Do you get a sense? Is there is there like a, a cultural pushback or a hesitance to acknowledge it? Or do you think that the that the nursing industry in particular or, or on a broader focus, the healthcare industry is aware of and open to this type of evolution? 
I think um, we are beginning, we are having much more, and I wouldn't deny that we are having much more awareness, especially since uh, the George Floyd murder, um, that we are, we are talking more about it. Um, but, you know, there is a limit to talking because every, uh, oftentimes when you talk and you don't implement action, nothing gets done. So, so, you know, we just keep talking. But we need to actually implement actions that would actually strengthen um, um, improve health outcomes for all individuals in Canada, including whether or not you're racialized or, or, or not racialized. And one of those ways is, is to move forward in terms of embedding. And I would say the public health, um, the Toronto Board of Health in Toronto, for example, uh, uh, identified anti-Black racism, for example, as, um, as a public health emergency. The Canadian Nurses Association also came out strongly and identified anti-Black racism as a public health emergency. In Ontario, the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario has been rolling out a series of um, webinars on um, anti-Black racism in, um, in the nursing profession. And um, I know the Canadian Nurses Association probably has some form of working group related to racism. So there are working groups that are being created, there are discussions happening, but it's also that we need to move this discussion along in terms of tangible and concrete actions and steps. And I think in, in um, Alberta, what I really, really would like our government to do is address the issues related to um, uh, COVID-19 vaccine hesitancy within the Black population because it's so vital and so important to population health outcomes. So we know, for example, that Black populations have the highest rate of COVID-19 infection. And we know that because of their past experiences related to racism, they also have the, the lowest rate of vaccination from COVID-19 infection. And we need to actually have tangible and concrete measures in our battle to address this. This, especially, you know, especially in this climate or in this condition that we are, um, also related to the news that we just heard last, um, um, just yesterday about, um, um, I mean, over the weekend about the um, 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 the increasing rate of COVID-19 yeah. in the province. So, Doctor, I'm not, I've not actually heard that before, uh, that that there's a correlation um, or, or that, you know, that there's a, a trend of vaccine hesitancy um, within the black community is is that something is that is that common knowledge or are, are you able to identify is there a root cause of that yeah so so statistics canada did a survey and um, they found that um, black populations were 20 percent less likely to plan to um get the COVID 19 vaccination than any other pop than um than than the canadian population in general Huh. And, um, you know, so so black population are least likely to plan to get the COVID-19 vaccination. And when you look at the reason, so in the past, I'm part of um, an organization that has rolled out educational workshops um, to um, increase um, COVID-19 um, acceptance rate among um, black populations. And oftentimes when you hear some of the stories or some of the underlying reason, it's actually because of people's past experience of racism. So for example, we have um, history of um, you know, um, research that has been done related to vaccine um, among um, you know, um, infectious disease control among black population that was actually racist in its approach. And you know, people still reference that 
um, and um, also people's trust of the healthcare system. And the trust of the healthcare system influences whether or not people will be willing or not willing to get the vaccine. And oftentimes because of lack of trust, because of people's experience of racism, that decreases people's um, um, you know, um, acceptability or acceptance of COVID-19 um, vaccine. So yes, it is well known. It's a statistics kind of the data. I can provide the data to you and you can probably tweet it on your website. I'd be happy um, to. It's kind of the data that shows that um, um, black populations and, you know, one of the dangerous things is black populations are also also have the highest rate of COVID-19 and they have the highest rate of COVID-19 infection, but the poorest vaccination rate. And this is one thing that our government has to consider and has to address as a vital importance. In this day and age. Got a great comment here on our live chat. Uh, an audience member basically says this is Heather. I mean, how do you stop, though, the distrust of the medical system if you don't address racism in the medical system, which is a, yeah, uh, so it's, it, it's, it's a simple question, but it's a huge question and an important one. Yes, because, um, for example, you know, if you're if you're a black person and you go into the healthcare system and, you know, people already have bias and conceptions of you and, you know, and you're always I mean, I had some people that I interviewed, some black men, um, a, uh, a black man that talks about the fact that, you know, whenever he approaches anyone is oftentimes have to always you know, put out this perception that I am not going to hurt you. I'm not going to harm you because there's this feeling that, you know, because I'm black, I am, you know, I'm going to harm you. And, you know, that's everyday experiences that some of our youth face. And, you know, I've also talked about the fact that people approach the healthcare system and they are treated differently in terms of pain management. There's research that's shown that. So you cannot, you know, you can't address trust without addressing the issue that people have experienced racism in the past. And we also have Canada's history of racism. So for example, in the past, there was a time in Canada that people, black people were, um, people were denied in Canada to come to Canada based on the color of their skin. So there was an explicit immigration policy that says, you know, if you're, um, if you're non-white, um, that we bar you based on, um, you know, races that cannot survive the weather of Canada. That's, that's how the, it was framed. But, but we do know, know the reasons for that. And then we also know that the embedded race, uh, racism that people experience when they are trying to access healthcare. And all this shapes the trust that people have. And of course, when people don't have trust in healthcare professionals, it affects the ability to actually accept suggestions or recommendations by healthcare professionals. So that this is one of the reasons. So actually, racism, and when I say racism is a public health emergency, and when Toronto Board of Health says racism is a public health emergency, this is one of the reasons why we say that, because it is really in the day of COVID-19 infection that it is a public health emergency to address racism as a social determinant of health. Doctor, I'm really grateful for the perspective that you've brought uh, to this conversation today. We want to you know, provide meaningful coverage of issues, and you've delivered in a big way today. Dr. Bookcaller Salami, uh, an associate professor at the Faculty of Nursing at the University of Alberta. You can follow her on Twitter uh, by checking out the tweet I sent out earlier this morning. Thank you for this, and I look forward to speaking with you again soon. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. You've got it. Uh, 
we're going to get to a conversation in just a second. I mean, this this is a show that's moving fast, talking about a lot of stuff. Uh, let me acknowledge if you're watching us live right now. Some of you are saying, you know, the, the, the Jason Kenny's talking now. Health Minister Tyler Shandro is talking right now. Um, this is not I mean, we record this show live. We present the show live. But this is a show where the majority of the listening audience is going to catch this later in the day. We don't typically do live event coverage. So we can tell you they are taking questions from reporters. You can check that out later if you like uh, via YouTube on Alberta.ca. In just a second, we're going to talk about why the indigenous legal community wants guaranteed representation on Canada's Supreme Court. That in just a moment. Right now, though, I want to remind you how excited we are here at Real Talk to be partnering up with Northwest Fest, the Northwest Fest International Documentary Festival. You can check them out online at northwestfest.ca. This is your chance to check out more than 40 feature films plus 40 additional shorts available to anybody from May 6th through the 16th. A lot of these are even world premieres. It's the only festival where you will see Fanny, The Right to Rock, the raucous story of the first all-female rock band signed to a major label. Or what about White Noise, the definitive explosive chronicle of the rise of the alt-right. And, of course, Real Talk, proud to be the presenting sponsor of this year's Global Visions film series at Northwest Fest, a series of 10 powerful films, including End of the Line, The Women of Standing Rock, the incredible story of a small group of indigenous women who risked their lives to stop the $4 billion Dakota Access oil pipeline. Real Talk proud presenter of the Global Visions film series at Northwest Fest. You can find them online at northwestfest.ca. And if you are one of our Patreon subscribers, check your email later today. There's exclusive access for you as our token of appreciation for your support. We're also very excited to be partnering up with Power Ed at Athabasca University. You can check out Power Ed. .ca. This is short online on-demand professional development courses and certificates. Leading edge, flexible, on-demand learning. PowerEd assists organizations to develop and deploy their own digital learning strategies. And PowerEd's launching a new micro course, Digital Wellness 101, optimizing your time and energy. You know, in the last year, the amount of time we've spent on our Wi-Fi enabled devices has increased by 46%. The average person picks up their mobile device 58 times a day. Power Ed Digital Wellness 101. That's actually going to be the focus of our Real Talk Roundtable this Friday at 11 o'clock Eastern, 9 o'clock Mountain. That's Digital Wellness Day. It's a feature that you will not want to miss. Well, the indigenous legal community wants the prime minister to reserve a permanent spot on Canada's Supreme Court for an indigenous jurist, a judge, without regard to whether the person is bilingual in English or French, beginning with an appointment to fill a vacancy this summer. Drew LaFond is president of the Indigenous Bar Association. Welcome to the show, and thanks for making time for us today. Thanks for the invitation. Uh, and this is really exciting. I think this is the first time that we've ever been invited to uh, speak on a podcast on this very important pressing topic. So. Uh, thank you and for giving us the opportunity on this one. Well, we're thrilled to have you here, Drew. Uh, let's jump right into it. Why is this such a priority? Why is this so important? Uh, speaking here today in my capacity as the president of the Indigenous Bar Association, which is a not-for-profit association representing uh, over 350 Indigenous lawyers, judges, students uh, across Canada and academics. And 
the reason why this came to the forefront and on part of our agenda in the past 12 months was uh, it became evident that Justice Abella was going to be retiring this summer. And obviously, it's a, it's a very important, uh, she's a very important representative, particularly for the Jewish community and her experiences and lived experiences that she brought to the bench during her tenure, or tenure was I think, extraordinarily valuable. Um, but then the question resurfaced, which a lot of our members had pushed on our executive to really raise awareness about, was that um, a pretty disturbing fact, which was that in the 145-year history of the Supreme Court of Canada, there hasn't been a single Indigenous judge appointed to the bench. Uh, we've had no representatives serve on the bench um, in any capacity, notwithstanding the fact that the country's highest court is essentially responsible for deciding nationwide issues of national importance regarding Indigenous rights, title, and uh, uh, reconciliation. So we got to a point as an organization where uh, our membership, which is comprised of a lot of individuals who had actually been considered for the top bench in the past, um, and were fed up with the way that the system had worked. Uh, it hasn't served Indigenous peoples to date. There's been systemic uh, barrier, barriers, and some artificial, arbitrary barriers that have been erected and some general endemic disregard for Indigenous laws that I think we can attribute the exclusion of Indigenous peoples to the bench to. Um, and we're just, uh, we really do have a, a point of urgency on this one to try to get it uh, pushed forward as quickly as possible. Yeah, Drew, I want to ask you, and, and, and I mean, the nice thing is we have the luxury of as much time as we need, because I, I suspect I'm asking you a question that's probably a pretty huge one. Um, but I've asked you to characterize uh, the relationship that Indigenous people in Canada have had with the justice system or the legal system, as you may prefer to call it, when we talk about barriers, uh, I mean, obviously, I think that this is a symptom, uh, a lack of indigenous representation on the Supreme Court, but but it obviously doesn't start there. So when you say in, in, in the more than one century long history of this court, there's been no representation. C can we dig into what might be part of the root cause of that? Certainly. And speaking today from Treaty 6 territory in the Muscat Lake Cree Nation, I'm wearing red uh, for a reason. We're, we're wearing red in commemoration of missing and murdered Indigenous women across Canada. And that just today is a day that's a matter of commemoration. And I mean, there has been a lot in terms of the politicization of and the, the awareness campaigns that have gone out about missing and murdered Indigenous women. I think one of the things that doesn't get conveyed as part of those campaigns for Indigenous people is uh, the human element to it that every, uh, at least every Indigenous person that I know in my life, including myself, have been impacted by a missing and murdered Indigenous woman. Um, the, the lack of attention historically that the issue has received has been appalling. And uh, the shocking thing about that is uh, until uh, the awareness was raised in the past decade, and it really has the heightened awareness of it has been brought to the public attention. Um, there, there was a long period of time where, unfortunately, this type of violence towards Indigenous women had become normalized, and there was no action at any levels of the justice system to try to turn around the, the trend, which was uh, if there was a missing and murdered Indigenous woman, that case would get lost in the files, pushed to the back burner, ultimately, um, not given the attention that you would have received had it been a, a person of any other demographic. So um, I think it's in debt, well, decades ultimately, and this is an endemic problem that Canada has to deal with. And I think it's fundamental. And it's a part of reconciliation that we, you know, the onus is on Canadians to try to ensure that we give our close attention to this issue to make sure that we stop violence against Indigenous women. Now, 
that dovetails nicely into your question about Canada's relationship with Indigenous peoples and uh, where we sit currently, because you'll you'll note that there was recently a commission, a, a report of the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women's Commission that essentially studied and made recommendations, uh, calls to justice about how we can improve the relationship between Canada's justice system and Indigenous peoples. But it's not it's not even close to being the first in its uh, report. And it actually is really a collaboration and a culmination of 20 reports over the last 30 years that have extensively studied the relationship between Indigenous peoples and the justice system, particularly uh, their interaction as as victims or offenders against the criminal justice system. And these are, we're talking about major inquiries, reports, and commissions that go all the way back to the 60s and 70s. Uh, notable ones, Royal Commission on Indigenous, on Aboriginal Peoples, um, Truth and Reconciliation Commission. You have the Manitoba Justice Inquiry that happened uh, in the 90s as well, too. All of which have, there's been an examination, an, a thorough and in-depth examination of some very important aspects of the justice system. Missing and murdered Indigenous peoples was one. Policing of Indigenous peoples is another. Uh, the lack of representation at administrative uh, uh, levels of the justice system is another. But a, a, another major one, and this was heavily focused on by the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, was the composition of a, a Supreme Court of Canada and taking into account the relationship in the multi-juridical nature of our country and how shocking it actually is to come to a conclusion or uh, me to be reporting facts on a podcast in 2021, or 2021, basically, that after 145 years, we haven't had a single Indigenous uh, Supreme Court justice serving on the highest bench. And you look at the types of the decisions that have been rendered by that court and the foundational monumental impact they've had on um, our status as people within this country. Um, it is, it's disturbing and it's shocking that uh, these decisions are being made without Indigenous participation on the bench. Um, a listener by the name of Sharon, she's cheering for you. Uh, she says, yeah, Drew. She says, this is a huge issue in our community. She says, we so need equal representation in the judicial system. Sharon goes on to share the heartbreaking uh, detail that she lost a friend. She said, a friend of mine was murdered, says the no one's ever been charged. Um, she also uh, invokes the memory of Cindy Gladue. Uh, a woman who was brutally murdered in Edmonton. Uh, I think most people know that story. Sharon says, I just think of that horrible trial uh, and, and how reprehensible it was, how, how, how that family was treated, how Ms. Gladue, uh, and if I can say my own personal comment, even her personal remains, how her, her body in my mind was desecrated and used as evidence. I, it, it's just, it was such a wake-up call or should have been, and I hope was a wake-up call for so many Canadians, not just Indigenous people, uh, but mainstream Canadians about some of these barriers that exist. So, so Drew, you're here. I mean, in, you know, speaking in, in behalf of your role is obviously a, a, a human being, but also you happen to be president of the Indigenous Bar Association and represented by uh, representing 333 uh, registered and active lawyers, academics and law students. So you've sent a letter to Justice Minister David Lametti. You've sent it to the prime minister, Justin Trudeau. You've asserted that only an indigenous candidate will be suitable for the next judicial appointment to the Supreme Court of Canada. You say increasing the number of judges should be accompanied by a mandate that more than one member or, or that rather more. Yeah, more than one member of the Supreme Bench uh, is indigenous, ensuring 
that it is permanently representative of the people it serves. Uh, The expansion uh, for the benefit of our audience would require a constitutional amendment with unanimous approval of parliament and the provinces. Do you believe you have the ear of the justice minister of the prime minister? Uh, Has there been correspondence between the PMO or the justice ministry and your association? Are you optimistic? We spoke recently about this in the Globe and Mail article that was released uh, last week, I believe. And I think in Sean Fine's article, I think did an incredible job about outlining the context and the history and the importance of including an Indigenous judge at the Supreme Court of Canada. And I think one of the IBA's comments that we had passed along to Mr. Fine as part of that work that he had been doing for the Globe and Mail was um, some history about our interactions with the Justice Minister and the Prime Minister on this point. And you'll note from our, our letter to the Prime Minister we tried to touch on some very key objectives. I mean, we're, we're not, I mean, ultimately the end result is going to be very important, but what we want to make sure that we get, what message that we want to convey right now is that the reason for the exclusion of Indigenous peoples is that there are structural systemic barriers in place which are preventing our participation as being considered as serious candidates for the bench. Um, a couple of them, uh, the first was representation on the, uh, the Independent Advisory Board that serves as the selection uh, body, uh, independent and autonomous from government, responsible for vetting candidates to the Supreme Court of Canada. Now, currently, there is no uh, process to guarantee the appointment of an Indigenous nominee. And what we've asked for is that the Indigenous Bar Association, as representatives of practitioners who are Indigenous in the country, have the ability to appoint a nominee to that independent advisory board. And that would be one structural change that we could ask for. The second would be, obviously, the elimination of the bilingual uh, bilingual uh, requirement to serve on the uh, on the bench and this one i mean we can unpack it. i'm glad we have a little bit of time on on the uh, show today to unpack this it's tough to do in a in a small snippet but the history to this one is that um if you look at what had happened uh, with the supreme court of canada reference when prime minister harper was in office um, in RV and Don. And if you recall in that case, the Liberals were extraordinarily critical, or they criticized heavily uh, the appointment by uh, Prime Minister Harper to the Supreme Court of Canada in that case as tinkering with the composition of the court. Um, and what has happened in this case is something that you can, I mean, it's relatively analogous to that point. Uh, the Official Languages Act is, uh, is up for amendment and there's a proposed amendment in there which would make it mandatory that in order to be eligible to serve as a a supreme court justice you would have to be bilingual in english and french um now obviously we had raised this there are two troubling aspects of it the first is as you had noted whether this is constitutional and i think when when it gets down to the the meat on this one when we grind it out as constitutional lawyers i mean there are a lot of people who have some very serious issues with the proposed amendment um, I'll leave that there. Um, let the constitutional lawyers argue about that one for, for other purposes. But from an Indigenous perspective, um, I, don't, I think one of our members, uh, who is actually a very senior practitioner and judge, uh, Ontario, a former Ontario Court of Appeal Justice Harry Laforme, um, said it best uh, when he said that bilingualism is and has been and was always a, uh, an impediment and an obstacle for his appointment to the Supreme Court of Canada. And obviously somebody who had made his way through the courts had been a very well-respected practitioner and obviously a very active member of the Indigenous community would have been an ideal candidate for the for the top bench. And I think part of a natural progression that he 
make the next step and actually represent the interests of Indigenous peoples at the top court. And unfortunately, uh, in his view, the bilingual requirement was a very, uh, it was a very tough uh, one to overcome for two reasons. Uh, the first was that functional bilingualism is a very tough thing to nail down. And it's an arbitrary barrier that, um, I mean, for better or for worse, some of our members suspect is being used as, a, as an excuse to excuse, excuse them as a, uh, as participating Drew, uh, I as didn't realize that's only that's only been a thing since 2016 right that was under under Prime Minister Trudeau the the bilingual requirement for a Supreme Court justice I didn't realize it was that relatively recent certainly and that's one of the things where uh, it was never it was never legislated you won't find a requirement in the Supreme Court Act that you be bilingual notwithstanding the fact that when the Supreme Court Act was uh, enacted, we, we took into account as a country what we thought the composition of the court should be and how to include the French language and the, and the representatives from the French common law into our top court. That representation was secured through the Supreme Court Act and the composition of the top judges there um, is legislated and it's, it's explicitly uh, prescribed by statute. Now we're in a position which has quasi-constitutional uh, status and again, I don't want to go too far down that path about how constitutional it is and what challenges might be imminent. But from an Indigenous perspective, that bilingual requirement since its inception has certainly been criticized by all members of the Indigenous legal community um, for two reasons. Like I said, the first is that Mr. Laforme was very clear that as an adult, if you're going to be learning a second language, your first priority as an Indigenous person, especially if you're involved in the Indigenous legal community, is to learn the language in which your, which your uh, relatives and which your ancestors and which everybody practices in your traditional territories. Um, the French language isn't going to be your first priority. The second is um, when we talk about language requirements, well, we've had individuals who have practiced law for 15, 20 years who are well-regarded academics, judges, uh, lawyers who, uh, hoping to be considered as Supreme Court candidates, have taken on the challenge to learn French. They've taken on the, they've taken years off of their practice to learn the language and to try to qualify themselves as being functionally bilingual. And again, having been passed over, so I mean, there are a lot of uh, either intentional, unintentional, clearly visible, but absolutely systemic barriers in place, um, preventing Indigenous peoples from participating in the top court, which we would like to see um, removed. So back to your, against that backdrop, back to your question, have we been in discussions with the prime minister and what was the genesis of our comments in the Globe and Mail article? Well, those two recommendations, appointment to the independent advisory board and the removal of the bilingual requirement were clearly communicated to the prime minister and the justice minister's staff. We had a couple calls and exchanges with the staff members most of which were basically just to update us on the procedural uh, procedural statuses of how the process was going. But for the most part, uh, not really a substantive engagement with us. We hadn't had the opportunity to really discuss these issues and how to make them come to fruition. Um, and then um, subsequently we find out that uh, the appointment for the independent advisory board process had completed without any engagement on our end. We had found out that the Prime Minister had intended to introduce amendments to the Official Languages Act to introduce to make sure that it was mandatory that you be bilingual, contrary to our request in the letter, which means at the end of the day, we had made requests in writing. The minister and his staff had engaged with us. 
and had gone in a completely different direction, taken a 180, which in our view, uh, any engagement which was which produces those types of results, I would have to assume would be disingenuous on the part of the minister and their staff, which frustrated members of the Indigenous legal community and the IBA. Um, so that's where we are now. Now, I mean, you do have to be a little mindful of the com- complexity surrounding the issue. Recent amendments or recent budget, uh, the introduction of the budget and the amount of money in pr- uh, that has gone into reforming the justice system and paying closer attention to Indigenous policing across the country, those are things that we can applaud and get behind. Um, but on the Supreme Court of Canada issue, unfortunately, uh, haven't had a lot of movement on that one. And for the budgetary items, proof is in the pudding, and we'll have to see how that unfolds. We've got a really interesting sort of a debate underway on our live chat right now around the around the requirement of bilingualism and, and, and whether or not bilingualism should should even simply imply French and English. Uh, Canada's two official languages. I mean, you know, someone on here says, well, what, 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 why not recognizing Cree as an example? Um, you know, uh, uh, the watcher says when I was little, they had mandatory second language classes in my northern Alberta school district, French or Cree. Uh, says this was a Dene land and that wasn't intelligibly Cree. Um, Haas says you could be a judge, but only if you speak both of our colonialist languages. Haas, Haas went on, by the way, earlier to say as long as the ability to tra- <laughs> that's a great comment, right? He goes on to say, though, as, as long as the ability to translate exists, uh, language restrictions on the Supreme Court of Canada are unnecessary, says Haas, in my humble opinion. Emily, meantime, says very interesting conversation. Emily says on the face of it, I would not think being fluent in both official languages is an unreasonable requirement. Um, you know, uh, I mean, yeah, so, so people are chiming in all you know, respectfully. Heidi says, I hear what he's saying, and I understand his perspective that it shouldn't be the main priority in promoting indigenous inclusion on the Supreme Court. But that doesn't preclude uh, French English bilingualism. Um, so, I mean, you, you've got people thinking, which is great. I, I want to give you a chance to respond to that. A couple interesting points that were raised right now. The first is uh, the bilingual requirement, whether it's appropriate. I don't want to comment on, um, again, the constitutional aspect of it. That is going to be one of the biggest hurdles that our our prime minister is going to have to uh, face. But from an Indigenous perspective um, and the the perspectives that have been conveyed to me, um, should bilingualism be a requirement for multiple languages? That's we're moving and certainly moving in that direction. Um, if you're doing a master's thesis right now in academic institutions for Canadian history, then you have to be prepared to make your submissions on your thesis to back it up in either English and uh, one other language, be it French or Nehiel or Cree or Anishinaabek. Um, so the academic community is certainly responding to that call right now. Um, the, it, the justification for the bilingual requirement we've been told is that there are submissions both written and oral uh, submitted by parties from across the country um, and they regularly interchangeably move between English and French when they're making their submissions and what they want. The expectation is that Supreme Court of Canada justices be able to respond in real time um, with thoughtful and informed uh, uh, approaches. But um, again, I mean, is it a requirement? It wasn't a, it wasn't a requirement prior to the policy became, or it came into force very recently and judges seem to have been operating or are we calling into question the legitimacy or validity of all of the decisions of the supreme court of canada justices going all the way back to its 145 year inception that happened before the french uh, bilingual requirement came into force like i I don't think that's the intention um but i think we're in a place right now where um 
whether or not uh, our prime minister thinks that bilingualism is a requirement on the Supreme Court of Canada and that it needs to be enforced is it's up to their government. We do have some very strong thoughts and views on that as Indigenous peoples and how it's prohibitive for us to participate in the Supreme Court. Appreciate you bringing that perspective. So, so let's let's wrap up with this. Nadine uh, is watching this morning and she, she gets right to the point. She goes, so like, is there a committee or something? that started to get the ball rolling on change here. She says, cause I'm willing to be on that committee to help impact change. <laughs> Nadine's a mover and a shaker. She's ready to go. So someone that's that, that wants to mobilize or somebody that's that feeling like they want to take action on this. What can people do? Well, indigenous peoples, we're always, we're always on the hunt for allies on these very important issues. And when it comes to this one, I mean, unfortunately, when we, like I said, the progress that we've made thus far, um, has been not very material uh, on the issue. We haven't made any substantive progress. Uh, the Indigenous advice, uh, the Independent Advisory Board currently that advises on the process uh, for vetting and selecting candidates for the top court uh, currently actually includes an Indigenous person, uh, Signa Dom Shanks, who I mean we're very humbled by her appointment. We support we've supported her academic writing in the past, and we do think that she can be a strong voice for Indigenous peoples. Um, it is a move in the right direction, and we applaud her participation. Um, unfortunately, the process leading up to her appointment wasn't necessarily reflective of any substantive change. And that's as an organization, what we hope to avoid is gestures of tokenism and uh, appeasement by federal or provincial governments. We're in a position right now where. Um, how can people are asking how can they get involved we're still at the very early stages of advocacy right now and if it's anything that anybody can do in terms of pressuring your local uh mps to try to put pressure on their justice department to make sure that uh, the federal government responds to this matter in a very timely way substantively that's i mean that's all we can ask for at this point Drew LaFond is president of the Indigenous Bar Association. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Drew LaFond if you want to learn more and link to some of the stories uh, and resources that he's been referencing. It's been an honor to have you here. I look forward to having further conversation on this, Drew. Again, thanks for the invitation. And it's it's always great to have a little bit of time to speak on these types of issues in our first uh invitation to a, a podcast on this one so thank you very much you got it we're proud to be that podcast thanks drew that's yeah i gotta say hey sir that's the beauty of uh, a show like this uh, we'll take our commercial breaks uh, i know it drives sam brooks nuts sometimes uh but but there, there's often times in shows like this very little structure in the in the sense that when a guest says i'm gonna need some time to dig into this we can I'm say fine with that we can say start digging <laughs> and uh that's a great conversation that was a good conversation. It was a great conversation. Uh, it's, it, these are the types of things that I'm going to be honest. Um, if this impacts you personally, like I was noting some of our audience members, Sharon, uh, what a powerful for Sharon to uh, have, have lived the nightmare of losing a friend. A friend of hers was murdered, uh, says no one's ever been brought to justice. Charges have never been laid. You probably don't have to tell Sharon no. that there are inequities here. There's a lack of representation. You probably don't have to tell young indigenous lawyers or law students or or maybe students that would love to be lawyers. Maybe, maybe, maybe some indigenous students, maybe students in communities, indigenous communities that are taking a look at, for example, a story that we covered a few weeks ago, a 65% increase in tuition at the University of Alberta's Faculty of Law as an example of another barrier uh, that may arise. And then right here, all the way up to Canada's highest court, the Supreme Court of Canada. 
Uh, some great insight from him. We're going to check in with Sarah in just a second. Of course, she is the producer of this show, has been keeping an eye on the, the news availability of some of Alberta's senior cabinet ministers, uh, Justice Minister Madhu, Education Minister LaGrange, Health Minister Chandra, and of course, Premier Jason Kenney. Uh, first, we wanted to remind you that our friends at Park Power sponsor our hashtag, the Real Talk RJ hashtag, which is the one that we keep an eye on during the show and outside of show hours as this podcast reaches many of you through the course of the day and you share your thoughts with us appreciated lynn using our hashtag to say thank you sarah for your reference this morning to may 5th as a day of remembrance to honor the lives of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls um lynn says this slides from our concerns too easily except for the thousands that are directly impacted she hashtags real talk rj lynn thank you for that the team at Park Power, in addition to powering that hashtag, also gives back to the communities where they live and work. They donate 10% of their profits to nonprofits. That's just one reason why you can be proud to take your business there. You know, you have a choice who you pay for electricity, natural gas, and internet. If you go to their website today and use the promo code 2021-REALTALK, they'll give you $70 off your first bill. No strings attached. A shout out to our friends at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. These are the locations we're talking about. Just FYI. If you're in Edmonton, Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, and Westmount. Shout out to Westmount. If you're in Sherwood Park, Y Gardens and Baseline Road. Those are the stores that Mark and Michelle and Mike own. And if you drop my name, if you tell them Jespo sent you, or if you mention Real Talk, from now until this weekend, they're going to knock five bucks off a Dairy Queen Mother's Day cake. It's all you got to do. Drop my name. Drop the name of the show. Five dollars off their famous Mother's Day cake at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. Also, big shout out to the teams at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge. Talked to Scott Held a few days ago. He's, he's, he's like, here's the straight up fact. Selection is is not great when it comes to pickup trucks, the Ram trucks in the province, any branded truck for that matter. Everybody's trying to get something new to haul their trailer this summer. You're going to get out to the great outdoors as best you can. Stay away from everybody else. Well, there's a shortage in truck production across I mean, it's around the world. Here's the good news. St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge, their selection beats everybody else. Plus, they've got the two locations. They can share inventory between the lots. You can check them out online today at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge. Just follow the link under the Sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. As mentioned, Sarah Hoyles has been keeping a keen eye on what we've been hearing from, if you're tuning in from Alberta, the provincial government uh, following the announcement yesterday, some additional restrictions. Anything changing this morning? What's jumping out at you of interest? Well, there is some big, big news around vaccines. So starting tomorrow, so that would be May the 6th, Albertans born in 1991 or earlier can now book... COVID-19 <laughs> vaccine appointments. Sam has got his arms up in the air. I think he might be part of that, that uh, demographic. That <laughs> yeah, just, a, just a youngin over there. Yeah. He's yeah, wait, no just, a, just a youngin. A little excited. That's and then all. on Monday, the appointment bookings will open to Albertans born 2009 or earlier. So they're really bumping it up, making sure that the focus is on vaccines. And uh, I mean, talk about you know just getting everybody on stage uh today with the long list of people that were speaking including uh premier jason kenny yeah i mean they've they've got all the they've got they've got the heavy hitters out there mm -hmm. they, they've you know they got the education minister who albertans haven't seen a lot of uh quite frankly mm -hmm. uh the health ministers out there the justice ministers out there which i would imagine casey madu uh, the honorable minister of justice has, has got to be up there because people are wondering uh with these new restrictions and you know fines doubling Right. Are they going to be enforced? 
That's well, what a lot of people are wondering. It's what you you can you can talk all you want about let, let's follow the rules, let's all get vaccinated, but fines are there really uh, as a, I mean I was going to say for one purpose, let's say two as a deterrent, uh, but also as a watermark of here's what happens when you do this or if you don't do this, and people want to see it enforced. Absolutely. I, I think some of the sentiments that I was <laughs> tracking yesterday was, you know, zero times zero is or zero times two because they're doubling is still zero. So if it's not enforced, if tickets are not given out or tickets are given out and then waived, zero times two is still z- zero. Yeah. So it, absolutely. I think this comes down to enforcement. I'm encouraged by seeing what is happening in Mirror, Alberta, where the the cafe is being closed down. That's been, you know, flouting all of the uh, all of the orders to shut it down or comply, comply first. And if not, shut down that cafe, um, the Whistle Stop Cafe in Mirror, Alberta. So, you know, maybe that's a sign of things to come. I'm like, fingers crossed. I really truly hope that enforcement becomes a priority because that's how we're going to get this thing under control. Yeah. Very well said. Uh, And that's not just my, like, I I mean, it is my opinion. Absolutely. But when we look in other jurisdictions, what's worked, that's what's worked. So I'm not just pulling this out of the air, out of the blue sky. It's really like, no, this is tried and true. This is what's worked in other jurisdictions. Yeah. We got this from Shalane, who wrote in to say, I wanted to let you know what an eight-year-old boy in grade two said after watching the premiere yesterday afternoon, says, my son said, mom, I'm so glad I get to finally stay home since I can't get the vaccine yet. This is an eight-year-old. Says, I've been worried I would get COVID at school. Shalane says, my heart broke. Even though I know he's aware of going on, I didn't realize how much it had been weighing on him. She's, I I bet you there's thousands of parents right now that are going to hear Shalane's email and go, us too. We had no idea, right? Uh, says my heart broke, even though I know he's aware of what's going on. I, I wonder how many kids will sleep better now, knowing they're going to stay home for the next few weeks. Uh, why did this take so long? She says, I was so angry I could cry. Uh, she says, on behalf of a real talker and a real talker's son. Hmm. That from Shalane. Now, I acknowledge it also. I mean, let's you know touch on some of the obvious things. It's going to be tough for some parents. Right. I mean, there's these ripple restrictions effects. Are, there's going to be ripple effects. I, I know that a lot of businesses, I mean, the patios are closing. I think you have to close patios, to be honest. It, it breaks my heart. I have friends that personally own restaurants. I'm going to be talking to one later today. Uh, they're doing everything they can. I've just I've I there are so many. I, my, my my like I know it makes me sound I, I have to always issue caveats and, and to be serious for five seconds, like <laughs> sort of the post me Too thing. Just as as a male, especially, I think now when I'm like, I'm going to go around hugging everybody. I'm always like, let me clarify. Yeah. <laughs> people that I would hug before, people that might come up and hug me. Um, consent will be there. Yeah, there, yeah. there will be consensual hugs. Yeah. Although the word consent these days, too, I'm not sure. What was the consensual altercation with the, with, with the 14-year-old student? Ugh. I'm not I'm not trying to drive you nuts, Sam. Uh, the, 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 the release from Edmonton's police officer that it was a consensual altercation when seven guys beat the shit out of a 14-year-old, dropped the N-word. It was, uh, it was consensual, apparently. Um, let me not make this a laughing matter. I have, so I'm going to hug and and throw money at so many different people, restaurateurs, store owner. I can't wait. And I know that I speak on behalf of a lot of people as soon as we can. 
And and I know that when we keep on saying, just keep fighting, just keep going, they're like, what do you think we've been doing? Yeah. What do you think we've been doing for 14 months? And there's going to be restaurateurs that have spent more on compliance. They've done everything and they've paid for all the plexiglass and they brought in the extra. They've gone to talk to the AGLC or they've talked to municipal governments and they've done everything they can to have spread out patios. And they've they've been turning Allen wrenches at night, putting together picnic tables. And we get it and we feel it. And I feel sick for these people. We were talking in our group chat, that sort of private Politico group chat that I'm in. And, and people are saying, well, what about malls? Like malls remain open. Yes, stores are at 10% capacity. But what about the common area of malls? Yeah. I mean, malls are a gong show right now. You know, one of our friends offering up the valid point that he says, well, you know, you, you disadvantage then retailers that are in malls as opposed to retailers that are not in malls. And I'm sitting there going like, but these are the types of things where I know you have to be sensitive. And I know it's easier for me because I'm being armchair premier right now or I'm being armchair health minister right now, which is a really easy job. It's a lot easier than the actual job. Right. Where you can't. But but sometimes I think. As they say, and this is a very insensitive way to put it, but to cut to the chase, you got to break a few eggs to make an omelet. Like every once in a while, you're going to have to say, I know this is really lousy. And I know this is going to upset some people and some donors. And I know, it, I mean, this will mean the end of some restaurants. It will. And it's tragic. And, and it it's has. brutal. And it has many. Uh, that's a fact. But at the same time, you look where the numbers are at, you look where the trends are at right now, and you listen to the warning of healthcare professionals that are looking at statistical data, evidence. I mean, Dr. Darren Markland, the ICU doctors had to cancel on us yesterday. He's unavailable today because his presence is absolutely required every single minute of it for him to be present. He said, I am literally running around the ICU right now. What more of a perspective check do we need that our guest, an ICU doctor, is unavailable for more than two days and counting because he cannot find five to ten minutes? I mean, at some point, you've got to do something or this problem is just going to grow and grow and grow. That's kind of what a pandemic does. I know I'm not stating anything profound. I'm stating the obvious here. But ultimately, when it comes down to it, I think that's how you have to make the decisions. I mean, I, I totally in agreement. I think what was, I mean, we kind of, you know, poked fun at it. But the idea that, you know, the signage changed for the provincial government, where they went from the purple to the yellow, and they changed the language. So they're talking about spike. And so if someone who is the most you know, reticent, the most reluctant to actually acknowledge the presence of a pandemic and acknowledge the problem has now shifted their language. I mean, that is a huge red alert or yellow alert in this in this case. I mean, in regards to restaurants, I know that, um, you know, ordering happens. And so when the announcement came on a Tuesday, not a Monday or later in the day, it actually made it so restaurants were prepping for a week that, right. that it, didn't have restrictions. They've spent that money. And now what? So it's, 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 I mean, it's, it's always not like hindsight's always twenty twenty. But I really feel like if we had locked down earlier, and again, this is going to be nothing that uh, someone hasn't heard, but that if we hadn't, if we had locked down earlier, there had been subsidies for businesses so people could stay home. This would have been like businesses would have been saved and there, there wouldn't have been this this just <laughs> wasteland. Paulo says it's heartbreaking to invest that much on a patio only to be told a couple of weeks after that they're not allowed anymore. 
Um, you know, I mean, Heather says, meantime, you should never have opened up restaurants for in-person dining in the first place. It only encouraged socializing. And boy, did it ever. Uh, Arnold says, I'm not for fines to enforce rules. You know, it seems to be only illegal for the poor and four thousand dollars or whatever. Rachel Notley was suggesting is enough to put most young people on the street. Um, I don't really care about that. I think I mean four thousand. I don't. What what is it now? Is it like two grand or something like that? Yeah. I mean, which is not a joke. Um, but like, if you don't want to get hit with a two thousand dollar fine, don't. Listen, I'm not the type of. I I am not the person. I've been on the record here, not on this show. We haven't been around long enough. But I've been on the record uh, in in public dialogue for many years. I am not the type of person that says, oh, with regards to like you know the, you know police departments uh, wanting access to people's doorbell cameras, or with regards to pu- public surveillance, or with regards to the if you got nothing to hide, don't worry about it. I am not that guy at all. However, in this circumstance, I am that guy. I mean, I've, the people may call me a hypocrite because in conversations about photo radar, for example, people say, well, if you don't want a photo radar ticket, don't speed. And I'm like, well, that's overly simplistic. And it doesn't address the core issue here of failing to invest in police officers and the value of traffic stops with regards to everything from, heck, DUIs and drunk driving all the way through to stolen property and human trafficking. I mean, it, it, there's value in police officers stopping people with cause. I'm, op- cause. I, I'm opening up a can every 10 seconds seconds here is what I'm doing because now people are going to want to talk about carding but let me just make my point my point is I'm not the person I promise I'll give you the floor back Hoyles I promise I will because she's like bouncing in her seat I am I am and what's the point of being a producer in this room if you don't get to talk so I will allow you to talk I don't have to allow you to talk I will see uh, what I'm saying is I will cede the floor my point is this I dismiss the argument if you don't want a photo radar ticket don't speed because I think that it dismisses the the, the serious nature of what need, that conversation needs to be about but if you don't want a $2,000 fine in the middle of a pandemic, don't break the public health restrictions. And quite frankly, I have zero sympathy. I don't care if it's somebody and put me on the record and taken out of context. This will make me sound like a jerk, but I don't care if you're a low income, middle income or high income earner. A $2,000 fine to me is appropriate. And heck, if you want to make it proportionate, like what Finland does with speeding tickets, Timu Solani got an $80,000 speeding ticket once because it's based on his income. If you want to be like that, hey, heck, fill your boots. Doesn't matter to me. You want to film you, you, you want to find a rich person 25 grand for hosting a backyard barbecue find them i don't care this these are you know when jason kennedy says talks about these are extraordinary circumstances never before has a government taken these well well yeah i mean and and i understand the message he's trying to get across but tell us something we don't know these are extraordinary circumstances they require extraordinary measures yeah and now i'll stop well, and just like the whole use of the term precedented, like, oh, this is unprecedented. This is, it's like it's lost. It's like when you say a word enough times, it just like turns into mush and it doesn't have any meaning anymore. So exactly. Unprecedented. This is something that, you know, we've never experienced before. Um, to me, I, I can see where people would, you know, come in and come at you around. Well, if you don't think that police need to be in certain places and enforcing and now now you want them to enforce. Just to me, it's... um. <laughs> it's not my own original thought, uh, but the idea that, you know, it's not police don't lower crime. They don't. It's it's about services. What are what services are available when you look at communities that have the richest and I don't mean rich like in money. I mean, just like the they're they're rich with resources. So they have the community um, programs. They have 
parks, they have infrastructure, all of those places, they don't require policing. Well, or as much or, or, or a community policing model. But how are you applying that to compliance on public health orders? Because it's not the same thing. Absolutely. And that's where I think the it's about infractions. So like if someone's speeding or someone is um, stealing or someone is assaulting someone, that's where law enforcement is required. Mm, got it. And I, to me, that feels like a very clear delineation. Sam? You got. I mean, oh I've, boy, I've, where do I start on this one? Well, uh, I, well I've just been seeing you. You're, you're sort of like you're like watching a tennis match here, and I'm going. We got to get this guy in on this. I like a thing, a thing that has I guess been bothering me for the last couple of days, and and I've been thinking about this since the rodeo is like, okay, who calls the police? And I say that very honestly, like who calls the police? Who has the teeth to enforce these things? Who has the teeth to press charges? Up until now, we've sort of tacitly said that like AHS can come in and say, charge these people with non-compliance as they did to Pastor James Coates at Grace Life. And, and AHS sort of seems like the authority that can make this happen. Like, can I, as a citizen, phone the EPS on non-compliance and, and they'll actually come out and do something? I'm not entirely sure about that. I'm, you know, I, I, I totally agree with you is that like, I mean, I tweeted yesterday, it's like, so two times zero is still zero, right? Because, you know, the way I see this shaken down is people that are connected people that have money and have influence and have power are never going to see a fine never 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 and if they do there are a lot of people where a fine is just a price of admission right if you're rich a speeding ticket is just the cost of going fast and oh well i gotta pay them well it's kind of it's like a minor annoyance yeah exactly and so like i mean bracketing to income sounds great but like i don't know why at the rodeo, there wasn't a perp walk of the organizers across the paddock in handcuffs to the giant jail in Bowdoin across the street. Like, honestly, they needed to be made an example of or nothing's going to change. They could have even done it old school. Like RCMP could have shown up on horseback and like done the real <laughs> with a horn, like a yeah. Well, no, the cavalry's like, coming. <laughs> and then like the tumbleweed kind of rolls across, and then like the cop comes in, and like ho- hopefully there's like a little bit of a mist, you know, and like the water's like coming up on the sides of the cowboy hat, and it's dripping down, and he's like, "Well, this rodeo's done," and the kind of thing. And then the rodeo organizer starts running across the infield, and the cop gets the the lasso, lasso and just boom, like old school let's go old school right now that would be making an example of yeah yesterday in in uh, rachel notley's response pressure i mean the, she she had a few good one-liners but i think the one that really stood out to me she's like yeah you get your first rodeo for free and that's kind of been the enforcement model so far we'll we'll give you a thousand stern warnings and then we'll have a press conference to tell you the zero dollar fines are about to double yeah so We'll see what this means. I mean, time's going to tell. Uh, obviously, these restrictions are coming to a fit. So what, what happens, Sarah? It's, 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 they start on Sunday. Is that right? Like the, we're talking about the, the barbershops, nail salons, those types of things, because people are trying to kind of make sense of this. Yeah. Um, I guess I'm kind of putting you on the spot a little bit here. But you really But are. it's OK. So as of Friday, so kids are moving uh, online. Parents can look Alberta.ca. Yeah. You'll find all the information on the website, on the government's website. But but schools uh, basically this is from K to 12 now. Right. Schools are home until I think it's it's May 25th. Is that right? The date next few weeks anyway. Yeah. Uh, restaurant patios are shut down. Um, you, you know, you're not going to be getting your nails done. You're not going to be getting your hair cut um, as of but this weekend. Right. You're going to be staying safe. Like, I, I think that to me is like. 
where I know that you're going through like the yes. the, gro- the gro- oh no I'm just no I'm not I'm not don't don't misinterpret what I'm saying yeah I'm providing information to people I'm right. not I'm not saying oh you know you're not going to be able to get your nails done that's not what I'm saying okay I'm, are you kidding me <laughs> are you fucking kidding me but, but no, I'm not <laughs> I just wanted to clarify yeah because <laughs> I think it's really important that we say like these are all the things that we can't do yes hundred percent. Well, there's information and then there's editorial. Yes, 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 yes. The information is here's what's changing. Yes. The editorial is like, let's get healthy. <laughs> right. Uh, Craig says, I live 20 minutes from Bowdoin. We're still getting a feel for one another. We're going to get a little. There's going to be. Sarah's <laughs> under the impression that I was that I was that I was speaking on behalf of Big Nail. <laughs> the Big Nail lobby's been in touch with the show. I, I actually think Sarah raises a bigger point because we know that there's going to be a huge contingent of people that book nail appointments and hair appointments today trying to get them in before the wire. 100%. There's, there's loophole jumpers everywhere. And and we know that there's going to be a massive rush on these appointments in the next two days. And that's totally antithetical to what we actually need to be doing right now. And the big point, like the like the verbiage that people are using when they're saying, ah, oh, we can't, we can't do this and we can't do that. And we're like, that's, I don't know. I just, to me, I'm- Get gonna, it in now while you still can. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Get it while the getting's good. Yeah. Um, Safety Blitz is asking, is Real Talk ready to work from home again soon? Um, we're taking all the steps. We're distanced. We're separated by plexiglass. We've Wait. got our air purifier. Um, I was working from home, you may remember, because I was in COVID isolation. Um, I was uh, not technically a, a close contact, but I felt that uh, ethically and to set an example um, uh, because of what we understand about, you know, how cases can take a while to show up. And uh, though I did have a negative test, um, I decided, uh, and most especially, I think as a public person that I was going to isolate, uh, the fact of the matter is we've built this studio to comply with all regulations and we will continue to broadcast from our broadcast studio and bring you live shows uh, each and every weekday. Obviously, if worst case scenario, one of us were to turn up with COVID symptoms, obviously we would isolate and take all of those necessary steps. And we encourage you, our fellow citizens, uh, to do that as well. Hope says, I just love that Sarah and Ryan are still getting to know each other. Uh, To be honest, we barely know each other. I love it. And it's actually a lot of fun because some of the stuff we figure out our working relationship behind the scenes, all the kind of boring stuff, yeah. how we're booking guests and how we communicate the details and that and the other. But also, as we knew you would, you add an element to this show where, quite frankly, on any given issue, I have no idea where you're going to land. I mean, yesterday <laughs> we started, we, well, which is awesome. And we started getting into fighting in hockey yesterday. And I was like, oh, here we go. We're clearly not on the same page on this. one. by the way, it reminded me, I got a great note from a listener uh, from Lazi who tunes in. Every single day from Dominical, Costa Rica. We absolutely love it. Um, he's a, a former captain of the St. Albert Saints. Uh, and he played pro. Oh, no. uh, and, he, and he's a wonderful guy. Oh, no. And he simply says, no, he's not, you know. He simply says, I mean, you know, he's a gentleman. He's a, as they say about hockey players, oftentimes male hockey, but they're violent gentlemen. And Lazi says fighting in hockey. He loved the show. And he says, Welcome. <laughs> And he says fighting in hockey is a way to regulate the intense emotions that the game naturally summons among its participants. It's not always necessary, but it's an opportunity for an individual to be held accountable for their actions on the ice or a chance to lift your team up with a spirited scrap. If you've never played the game or competed at a high level of sport, it may be difficult to settle into why fighting is a part of the game. 
But to take fighting out of the game will cheapen its rich layers of sportsmanship, allowing for more chiseling stick work, cheap talk, and more negative outcomes of those intense emotions. That was a thoughtful contribution. That was a beautiful contribution. I mean, I guess I should also say that when I go to a live uh, hockey game, I love it when the guys slam into the boards, like when they get body checked into the boards. Yeah. Like it, it, I don't, I can't explain it. I just like, it's like, Ugh! right. Yeah. It's the whole point. Yeah. Yeah. I just like the NBA better. Which is great too. And I just adding on, to the fabric of our show. On that note, um, on the live chat, we had someone say, uh, Tony say, sorry, Ryan, my money is on Sarah any day of the week. Well, on what? On what? Uh, everything. On, well, Tony, I have, I hope I you can't have, speak for Tony. I hope I'm you sorry, have deep pockets. <laughs> my money'd be on Sarah on a lot of stuff too. And my money will be on me on a lot of stuff too. And heck, Sam, let's not count Sam out. Yeah, that's right. Sam's, I'm still here, guys. Sam's Sam's the sleeper on the team. You got to be careful with Sam because you never know. You're going to be like, you're going to be like, you're going to learn something new about Sam and then find out that he's like a master sculptor or something. Or like, yeah. I remember when we were first talking, it was, he didn't even bring it up in the first couple of meetings. And then all of a sudden he made some comment about engineering. And I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, well, I'm an engineer. Like, what do you mean you're an engineer? Well, I'm an engineer. I went to school for it. Now he's going to say I'm not a PN. She's going to point it out because that's what they do. Yeah. I had a I had a past he's guest. He's got the re- ring, though. I had a past guest reach out to me. Oh, they all yeah. have the pinky ring. That's the, that's the thing. That's the, the Illuminati. They won't tell us. They won't tell mm-hmm. us about the pink because because right, Sam, because we can tell you what the ring is for. We can't not, tell you what happens in the ceremony. We're There's not big privy. Difference. We're not privy to it. Yeah. OK, what's it for? Aside from like so you guys look at each other and you kind of have the is there like a little like a, a <laughs> wink or a secret handshake or something? What is, I mean, again, I can't teach you the secret handshake. I told you it is like that part of it is all the ceremony is closed uh no the the general premise of the ring is you wear it uh on on the finger on the small finger of your working hand and it's just a reminder that like people's lives are in your hands when you're an engineer Ah. it's it's a it's a constant reminder that you look at and it tells you that you know um when you are an engineer things matter there are big consequences to what you do and it just serves as a reminder while you're working that you have a responsibility that's what the iron ring is for that's very cool that's very cool i don't know if i can handle the i mean that's kind of the whole point of what makes engineers so important um and i'm proud i've been professionally associated um as the proud host of of the last number of years of the consulting engineers of alberta showcase awards and and apega uh, association of professional engineers geologists uh geoscientists rather um so i mean i've my grant my grandpa rudy was a chemical engineer with chevron for many years i'm just like so i've, I've had a huge respect for it i can't i cannot imagine the i mean the the I don't know if pressure is the right word to use, but there is pressure inherent of being someone that designs, for example, a bridge or a tower, mm-hmm. right? Like all these, these engineers, I mean, the fascinating science that's going in, this show could be like nine hours long. We better wrap soon, but <laughs> <laughs> I've, got, I've got a nail salon appointment to get that's to, right. but, um, but, uh, <laughs> but, but in all seriousness, like the work that they're doing with regards to buildings that are resilient to things like tsunami or earthquake or as much as possible anyway, or like those big bridges that span, what's that bridge? Uh, what's the one in, 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 uh, in the Maritimes that's like, there's a bridge that just spans oh, uh, a wild, the Confederation bridge, right? It's just PEI, right? Yeah. Like imagine, I mean, the, 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 I mean, the, the immense honor, mm-hmm. uh, to be a part of a project like that, but the pressure too, right? Yeah, and and I mean, you know, this could 
my God, we could go into roundtable discussions on, uh, you know, what it's like to be a professional in any field that actually has a large responsibility put on you. But I mean, much like any other field, you rely on your colleagues. You rely on people to check your work for you, right? Yeah. Like that's that's how you mitigate the pressure. You know that by the time these blueprints land on a job site, hundreds of people have read them. Yeah. Um, CJ beats bipolar. He, he's been on the show before. Chris, just an absolute beauty, a uh, real mental health advocate uh, says I'm a crane operator by trade. Don't get me started on engineers. <laughs> what, what does that mean? Is there like an inherent uh, engineers rivalry? are not well liked on job sites? Is that why? Because they're because sticklers? we show up and we tell people what the rules are and they get mad. But I would imagine crane operators would be pretty yeah. into following the rules. You would think so. Yes. I, I remember when I was in university and I worked construction labor as a summer job and I made this mistake only once telling people that I was an engineering student. And, and then I just started saying, yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. in sciences. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, Heidi is trying to make my life difficult. Um, I say that with a smile and huge respect. She says, sorry, uh, sorry, violence to regulate emotion. Um, you, you cannot evaluate the dynamic of a professional sport in the context of a general society, right? It just doesn't, right? Like if we're going to do that, then, then let's start talking about football quarterback sacks. Like if, if, I mean, this is such a dumb example, but if I see somebody in a supermarket, that's going to go for the last thing of soy milk that my wife sent me there to get. And I know I better come home with one or I better not come home. I don't just get to take that person out. I'm not applying. I'm not applying the, the, the rules of sport to regular society. Don't get me wrong. Right. Jillian points out the fact that's rather inconvenient for me. She says fighting does not exist in European hockey in Olympic hockey. It's unique to hockey leagues in, in North America. Most especially the National Hockey League. Sure, it's a style of play. It's a rule of sport. And I have no problem even going on the record and acknowledge, acknowledging that I'm somewhat of a hypocrite in the sense that I adore fighting in hockey. I'm the in-game host of the Edmonton Oilers. When there is a fight at a hockey game, my job is immeasurably easier. The crowd cheers more for a fight every time than a goal. Except for maybe Connor and Leon. Some of Connor's goals get louder cheers than fights. But for the most part, fight, nothing gets people going like a fight. However, I cannot stomach mixed martial arts, the UFC. I cannot watch it. I can't watch. It's too gruesome for me. I'm not judging anybody that likes it. I'm certainly not judging competitors. I don't have the stomach for it. So if you were to call me a hypocrite, I would say you have plenty of fodder to form your argument. <laughs> Take your pick. Take your pick. <laughs> On, on, a, on a number of my vulnerable fronts, take your pick. <laughs> but I really do feel like fighting is important in hockey. And that's a matter of that's my opinion. I mean, I think the nuance in there is the fact that, you know, and it speaks to conversations we had previously in the week. The idea that, you know, sports inform culture. And so what is OK and what kind of example that is setting for, say, men what is it that is saying it's saying it's okay and your heroes the people that you idolize are allowed to do this however however in all seriousness oh boy are we just are we and, and here's where, and i'm gonna ask you the question and then we're just going oh we're out of time oh my oh, gosh look at oh that. it's look out of look at that. we're out of time unfortunately we have to go <laughs> what do i want to teach my young son right. uh, to be as a person kind considerate 
compassionate, empathetic, all of the things, respectful, um, to, to open doors for people, to thank people when they open doors for him, to be gracious, to be wave when someone lets you in in traffic. To, if he doesn't do that, <laughs> if I mean, if he doesn't do that, he's out. Uh, that to me is like when I see somebody that doesn't wave in traffic, I want to I want to interview them, ask them about their about their parents and the lack of involvement their parents had in their lives and the psychological and emotional shortcomings. Um, but seriously, uh <laughs> When my son and I'm and I'm happy to be I'm excited to be his alternate. He keeps saying you're he keeps saying you're like the coach's helper. I say, no, I'm, I'm I say I'm the assistant coach. I'm not the coach's. Yeah, he's it's awesome. We have so much fun. But if I see Wyatt playing defense and acting as, you know, or, or playing hockey like we've treated, you know, taught him to treat people, which is you go first, you go right ahead. Help yourself. You know, blow by me on the blue line. Go ahead, two on one, and put it top shelf on our goalie. We're gonna have to talk about how what happens on the ice is what different than happen. What's different than happens in real life. And so, in all seriousness, I mean, because I realize here, and here's what we can do. This is what makes this real talk: is that we can have fun and jovial and and candid and sometimes silly conversations about really, really serious stuff. We talked about domestic violence yesterday. I mean, I'm thinking, you know, one of the first thoughts I had. I promise I won't go too long on this. Uh, because I'm going to try to say a lot in a little amount of time. But one of the things I was thinking with those restrictions and there are more kids staying home and people are going to stay home. And for, for people right now that are every single day is a fight for them uh, because they're in a violent situation. They're in a situation where they're not being respected, where they're being beaten or uh, for kids that where school is their safe place. Um, oh. Right. I mean, there's kids. There are kids that are I, I'm sorry to be heavy on this, but the, the reality is there are kids that are subjected to physical and sexual an emotional assault. There are kids that are sexually assaulted every day at home and school is the one place where they escape it. And when kids are sent home from school for three weeks for a lot of kids, and this is heartbreaking to say because it's true. um, There are a lot of kids that that means that the assault that they are subjected to the abuse that they are subjected to is going to increase over the next few weeks. I mean, there are so many different nuances to this, right? And so I, I, I guess what I'm trying to say here is I so appreciate that we can have these conversations that sometimes are silly and are funny and candid, but we're also uh, addressing real situations. And so while I may come across as somewhat glib and talking about fighting in hockey or toxic masculinity and saying why it better open doors for people in real life, but better not let the forward blow past him if he's playing defense on the ice. It's not because I'm not absolutely aware of of real issues and under and, and 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 boys and girls and gender fluid young people and and what everything that we're learning about and the pressures they face and the societal expectations um but also sometimes i'm just like but also i'm just a big sports fan and i think and i don't think that everything in life always has to have the gut-wrenching level of seriousness sometimes i think that 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 some things in life we approach at different levels and this show is a great home for that and I'm so excited to have you two on board for this. And I'm so excited to have an audience that's on board for it. And, and that shows up, too. I believe this is probably the longest show that we've ever done. It's time for us to wrap things up. It might be. I don't know. We're, we're two hours and 45 minutes. We're getting right up there. We're getting up um, there. So we better let everybody get to the rest of their days. Uh, we know we got some stuff to to get to ourselves. Um, can I can I just say thank you to everybody that's been a part of conversation today. If you look at the ground that we've covered and, and you look at what we still left on the table, it gives us lots to get into tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow, we're going to be talking to uh, a couple of filmmakers uh, whose exploration into the, the culture of vinyl 
is on display at Northwest Fest. We've got a great panel of physicians, including a palliative care physician and federal minister. Mary Ng will join us, plus other news of the day covered in real fashion. We'll talk to you then.